CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Wednesday, May 8th. And live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's the return of humanity in the headlines, Atiba Buchanan. We welcome Democratic Socialist author of the Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality, Bhaskar Sankara. And we're hitting left with Chicago political junkie, Mike Klonsky. Uh, And now your host, also a Chicago political junkie, (laughs) Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Ripped Off Wednesday, folks. And here's why. So for the last few weeks or so, Mayor Rahm's been traveling from Rosen to Rogers Park, from one end of the city to the other, on his farewell tour, pounding himself on the back for having saved the city, allegedly having saved the city from financial ruin. He says things like, I did it. I was right. I was brave. I'm courageous. Yay me. That's kind of my Donald Trump imitation, actually. Yeah, yeah. How would Rahm say it? Uh, way to go, me. <laughs> I'm smart, you're not. Yeah, that's how we would do Dr. D does a great mayor, Rom. Anyway, I swear at any time he's going to break into the song, uh, The Greatest Love of All. The greatest love Please, is me. I love that song, by the way. You know, it's from a movie about Muhammad Ali. Did you know that? Oh, no, I couldn't tell what song it was. <laughs> the greatest. Based on that singing. <laughs> Whitney Houston, the greatest. Uh, anyway, George Benson sang the the song, the version in the Ollie movie. Anyway, focus, Ben. Focus. Please. Now, folks, I know you're too smart to fall for this baloney that Mayor Rahm is feeding you. But just in case you are feeling tempted to fall for that baloney, just in case, check out the story by Franz Bielman. Today's bright one, Sun-Times. Home delivered. There it is. See that? <laughs> That's called a newspaper. Millennials. Don't get me started on millennials today. I'm feeling very... You doing okay with your headphones? <laughs> like... Headphones are kind of like moving around on me a little bit. Sort of like millennials and cell phones. That's a whole other story, You call folks. them head cones. <laughs> headphones. All right? Anyway, headline. Chicago's sell-off pays off for private companies. Oh, yeah, does it ever. Chicago's sell-off pays off for private companies, all right? In particular, the parking meter deal, okay? The parking meters were sold to consortium investors in 2008 by the Chicago City Council, all right? And the mayor at the time, Mayor Daley, last year, that consortium of investors took in $132.7 million, folks. That's about $133 million. That's a lot of change you're feeding to those meters. 
Since they purchased the meters, they've taken a total of $1.2 billion. Good Lord. All right. Now, going to get a little mathematical here. So follow me, everybody. They paid $1.16 billion for the meters. D, write all this down. Take notes, okay? All they right. paid $1.16 billion. Okay. Now, I'm not Dan Biss when it comes to Who mathematics. Is? <laughs> He's a genius. Dan Biss is not even Dan Biss when it comes to mathematics. But $1.2 billion is more than $1.16 billion. Got that, D? $1.2 billion is more than $1.16 billion. You don't have to be Dan Biss to know that. All right, now hold on while I do the math. <clears throat> All right, you see you got $1.2 billion, which is what they've taken in, and you take away the one point. One six, which is what they paid, and you got. Hold on now, everybody. I'm almost there. Oh, they've made four hundred million dollars. Live streamers <laughs> can totally see that was not a real calculator. The jig is up, dude. Hold on. Let me get the real calculator. Don't. Please don't. All right, hold on. One point. <laughs> Folks, they made $400 million and they're just like in year 10 of a 75-year deal. All right, now, I'm going to do a little more Dan Biss deep dive. Hold on with me, everybody. Well, there with that Dan Biss interview. If, <laughs> ben, I'm a mathematician. Did I tell you that? Oh, no. All right, hold on. Anyway, if you got 60 more years on this deal, and you're making $133 million a year, and you're probably going to make more, but let's be conservative, okay, on this... That's $8 billion, D. They're going to make $8 billion off this deal, folks. I, have to, I hate to say I told you so, but guess what? I told you so. Back in 2008, 2009, Mick Dumpke, my main man, Mick Dumpke, and I were writing article after article in the Chicago Reader saying, this is a terrible deal. Let's blow it up. <laughs> no, once again, the city didn't listen to us. Now, you know what you're saying. You're saying, Ben, you're so unfair to Mayor Rahm. Ben, that was Mayor Daly's deal, not Mayor Rahm's. You're so unfair. And they always say, everybody says I'm unfair to Mayor Rahm. You were like reading the thoughts in my brain. <laughs> Tom McNamee said I'm unfair. People coming to bed. He's a really nice guy. He's pretty cool. Come on, Ben. <laughs> All right. Yes, indeed. It was Daly's deal. But Rahm had a chance to repair it. And he wimped out. There was a lawsuit filed early on against the parking meter deal. Rom could have joined that lawsuit. Rom could have used that lawsuit as leverage to force the owners to renegotiate. Instead, he made a few minor changes on the edges and got the city council to approve the deal all over again. And instead of improving the deal, he reaffirmed the lousy deal that exists to this day. And now here we are feeding those meters and watching those dollars fly out of Chicago while your property taxes go up, up, up. Folks, I hate to say it, there's no way it's any other way, but you're getting ripped off. We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, we have uh, Atiba will be here, Buchanan, and uh, he's from Humanities in the Headlines. The man knows a lot about Donald Trump. Usually you say, wait, where's Monroe? Monroe's out of town. Atiba's our uh, Trump guy when Monroe's out of town. We'll be talking Trump, Trump. Trump and Trump, 
just like if Monroe were in town. Please watch your mouth, Atiba. <laughs> Don't be like Monroe in that way. Uh, Bhaskar Sankar will be here and uh, from uh, Jacobin Magazine, the Democratic Socialist of America. He wrote the Democratic Socialist Manifesto. The man knows more about Democratic Socialists than anyone in America. We'll be talking about Democratic Socialism and... Uh, how we can do better in this upcoming election. We'll be really interested in that conversation. And at 2.30, an old friend of mine, Mike Klonsky, all right, Klonsky will be in the studio. People go, wait, there's so many Klonskys in town. There's a Mike Klonsky, there's a Fred Klonsky, there's a Joanna Klonsky. This is Mike Klonsky. He's a little on the crumpy side, people, so be nice to him, all right? He's Klonsky. Just call him Klonsky, D. Okay. Uh, he knows quite a bit about politics. He's got a lot of opinions. I'm sure he's going to be weighing in on absolutely everything. He's also a sports fan. All right. Did you know that? No. Klonsky used to play basketball. Oh, really? Yeah, he still limps around with a bum knee going, yeah, I was just sitting my shot. In the <laughs> you know old he's day. coming in, right? Like, why are you <laughs> trashing him? Well, you know, when he comes in, I'll tell him to say the same thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Mike Klonsky will be here. be talking politics with Klonsky. He's got a lot a lot of interesting, interesting things to say, and uh, he'll be sharing with, them, with us. But before we do any of that, doctor's got the news yes it's me the aforementioned doctor not a doctor my real name's dennis dude okay there you go fix those headphones hey, i was man. worrying man i thought your headphones were gonna fly off hey, there. come on man i handled it though oh nice you job know, nice you know. job Mitch first Trubitsky with the pressure still through the perfect pass <laughs> first things first the national news on mm. capitol hill a house committee is voting to hold the attorney general yeah william barr in contempt of congress after he failed to comply with the subpoena request for the full unredacted version of special counsel robert Mueller's report on russian interference in the U.S. presidential election. Democrats believe he is hiding something in that redacted report, and they believe he's protecting Trump. Oh, and Barr also failed to appear before the House Judiciary Committee last week, which in turn brought us some very clever chicken jokes <laughs> on the program. Uh, I have a few quotes from today's voting. These quotes kind of provide you with some insight on how this is uh, going down today. Right now, they're on recess. I oh, had to take a, have a little yeah, lunch break. Yeah, right? Have some chicken? Yeah, well, yeah more than lunch. <laughs> first, up, first up, it's House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. Nadler cast the effort as an attempt to uphold the legislative branch's oversight authority. Quote, the president has stated that his administration will oppose all subpoenas and, in fact, virtually all document requests are going unsatisfied. Witnesses are refusing to show up to hearings, he said in an opening statement. This is unprecedented. If allowed to go unchecked, this obstruction means the end of congressional oversight. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what Jim Coogan, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan, was saying yesterday. This is a constitutional showdown, folks. It's coming up uh, whether you want to avoid it or not. I know many of my listeners of the leftist persuasion wish that Democrats hadn't even raised these issues, uh, but uh, the, the reality is this: we want, need to know what went down in 2016. I want to know what went down in 2016, if for no other reason than I'm a curious type and a lifelong reporter. But uh, you cannot avoid a subpoena, so we'll see what happens. Ultimately, it'll come down to the Supremes, D. And if I had to put money in Vegas, I'd say uh, Trump, uh, Trump's boys will come through for him. Uh, Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch, but we shall see. Well, it didn't take long for a response to Nadler. Here's White House press secretary and lover of math story problems. <laughs> and so the fifth reporter, like the first four, now paid nothing. Okay. He got a 100% 100. saving. All right. The sixth now uh, paid $2 instead okay. of $3. The 33% saving. Three. Uh, the seventh now paid... Yes, Sarah yeah. Huckabee Sanders. I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders did the math on the parking meter deal and told us it was a good deal. Sarah uh, uh, Sanders responded to Nadler saying, 
saying that President Trump will assert executive privilege over the Mueller report. Here's the quote from uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, quote, faced with Chairman Nadler's blatant abuse of power and the attorney general's request, the president has no other option than to make a protective assertion of executive privilege, she said in a statement ahead of the House committee's vote to hold Barr in contempt of Congress. Yeah, executive privilege means he's asserting that he is bigger than the law, greater than Congress, more powerful than any congressional subpoena. He's basically becoming a tyrant right now. Come on, Troy. Where are my Republican friends who believe in democracy and open government and libertarian issues? Where are they? Oh, hold on, D. There they are, under the table. Uh, That's generally where you can find Republicans when you really need them, under the table. Wait, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, what's that? Ninth, now paid 14 instead of 18, which was a 22% (laughs) saving. Okay, I'm lost. Wait, time out. That is an old bit from, what was she talking? It was the tax deal. (laughs) She was explaining how, oh yeah, now it's coming back to me. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, who's as good at math, just like Dan Biss, uh, was explaining to reporters how a tax hike, Excuse me, a tax break for the wealthiest people in America was actually a tax break for the middle class. And it was a very interesting word problem that nobody understood where she was going with. Great radio content, though, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Doug Collins, a Republican of Georgia, called the move from Democrats today cynical, mean spirited, and counterproductive. He said Democrats are only going after Barr in frustration that the Mueller report did not establish collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. First of all, it did establish collusion. What do you think they were doing? When they were meeting in, in New York, hey, we got the goods. I mean, what do you think they were doing? You know, but it did establish collusion. Uh, and just Trump says it didn't. What's Trump's ID? No collusion. All oh, right. No, well, I thought you would do it in your Trump voice. But Trump always says no collusion. So oh, that, sorry. No collusion. Yeah. Who? What was the guy's name? Colin, Doug Collins? Yeah. Same name as the basketball player? I believe so. Huh. Or the coach? Anyway. That's what I was wondering. And yeah. finally, a quote from the man who went out of his way to bring an entire bucket of fried chicken to <laughs> Barr's no-show testimony last week. Yes, the original king of chicken comedy himself, <laughs> Tennessee Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen said, quote, if he weren't president... He'd be in prison with Michael Cohen. I agree 100% with Stevie Cohen. I don't know why Michael Cohen's in prison and Donald Trump is not. In fact, I think it was Cohen that said that yesterday when he went to prison. I can't understand why I'm going to prison and Trump's flying around in Air Force One. Uh, you know, um, if he lied to Congress to cover up Trump's misdeeds, well, what about the misdeeds? Kind of selective who gets punished. These days. By the way, D. The tr- chicken joke goes back. Let me explain it. Steve Cohen, the Democrat from Tennessee, uh, when Barr didn't show up to face the, the uh, congressional hearing, only went to the Senate hearing. Why did he choose the Senate over Congress? Good question, everybody. You're really paying attention. The Senate's controlled by Republicans, so he knew there'd be nothing but softballs coming his way. The the Congress, the House of Representatives, is controlled by Democrats, and they were going to have their real geeky lawyer types, their Jim Coogan types, real sharp brainiacs, zeroing in on them. So he said, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. That's too scary. Hence, he was chicken. So Steve Cohen brought a bucket of chicken. Now, D, he brought Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yes. I do not believe he should have. They should have brought Popeyes. In my humble opinion, Popeyes is better than KFC. Bringing up Fried Chicken Gate again, huh? In your opinion, which is better, KFC or Popeyes? I, we did this last week, you know. Oh, do you haven't changed your mind? No, it's still KFC. Oh, man, he's wrong on that one. <laughs> Bringing last week's material to this week, it's the Ben Jarofsky Show.
right. Who can remember from one week to another? And, and plus, just thinking of chicken makes my mouth water. And finally, as we were ending Tuesday's show, the New York Times released an interesting oh, yeah. story about our president. Some tax return numbers mm-hmm. were leaked. And according to the documents, Trump lost more than $1 billion in the decade between 1985 oh. and 1994. The president has responded, and no, the nightmare is not over. It was on Twitter. <laughs> Cue the ukulele. <laughs> All right, here's Trump explaining all that lost money between 85 and 94. You would get it by building or even buying. You always wanted to show losses for tax purposes. Almost all real estate developers did and often renegotiate with banks. It was sport. Additionally, the very old information put out is a highly inaccurate fake news hit job. All right, let's let's break it down, Donnie. Either it's fake news and inaccurate or you are really wheeling and dealing like developers do and i'm just quoting you hey developers of chicago donald trump just accused you of cheating on your taxes you are really wheeling and dealing to make sure that even though you are making money and living in a the high life on your trump tower you're paying nothing in taxes so it's one or the other either the story is accurate and shows how brilliant you are at avoiding taxes or the story is inaccurate and you're not that brilliant and you did pay taxes which one is it donald so you're telling me donald trump's talking out of both sides of his mouth yes whoa while eating chicken oh my god i gotta go home I got to go home and go to bed. This is crazy. Now, of course, we will keep you posted on these stories as today's program rolls along. And don't forget, we will be taking the deep dive on all things Donald Trump with our 130 guest, Mr. Atiba Buchanan. Mm -hmm. Benny J., let's move on and find out what's going on in Chicago and or Illinois. It's time for What Else is News. Sounds like a good idea. Lori goes to Washington. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Our Chicago mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot surprised us yesterday after reports came out that she is taking a three-day trip to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Day one was yesterday. Some are calling this visit a relationship building tour. Now, if this were a mayor-elect of any other city, I would take that as the mayor-elect himself building a relationship with the top brass of the country. Makes (laughs) sense. But... Based on our ongoing history with the 45th president, building a relationship tour means something completely different for the city of Chicago. Does it not, Ben Jarofsky? Yes. And uh, what does she do? Raising money? What does this one mean? She just went out there. Although he called uh, to congratulate her on her runoff win in day one of her trip, Lori Lightfoot did not meet with President Trump. Mm. She did, however, meet with his daughter, Ivanka. And according to Lori Lightfoot, Ivanka Trump reached out to Lori. She reached out to me um, after the election. It was very clear to me, both in my conversation with the president and my conversation with her, that they had been following um, the election quite closely. Yeah, this is uh, dip diplomacy. So now she's the mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, while she was running for office. She was trashing Trump left and right because people in the city of Chicago do not like Donald Trump. So now uh, she is uh, going to Washington. She's the mayor-elect. She has to be, you know, diplomatic about things. So she's showing that Trump's not such a bad person, I guess. I I suppose that the person in the White House that liberals uh, can deal with without being embarrassed is Ivanka. Is that what it, is that what the deal is, D? Like, she's the designated liberal dealer in the way. The, Mayor Rahm used to have that, by the way. Mayor Rahm, when he first came into office, had uh, an aide whose job it was to deal with people of the liberal persuasion. I mean, you figure, well, the, the, a Democratic mayor of the city of Chicago would not need an aide to deal with people of the liberal persuasion because Chicago is a liberal Democratic city. 
Mayor Rahm, you know, he comes at things from the right and loves uh, corporate types and, you know, executives a little more than he loves activists. Anyway, there was this aide, his name was David. When I, uh, his job was to deal with people like me. And then after a while, even he got annoyed with me and stopped calling me. But I, I, I have a feeling that Ivanka plays a role uh, similar in the Trump White House to what David did for Rahm, and that is deal with liberals. The meeting with Ivanka Trump was described as productive and positive. And without offering any details, Lightfoot tweeted that the two discussed a wide variety of topics. Ben, I couldn't think of a better time to speculate. So let's do it. What do you think Lori Lightfoot and Ivanka discussed? Well, I... uh I know what they say they discussed. I think there was probably about 15 minutes of, oh, you're wonderful, and I love you, and you're beautiful too, and Jesus, all get along together, and if I need anything, can I call you? I think that's what went down. By the way, can I just say one thing, Dee? Hmm. I just put a little tangent here. I want to say this. I want to give a shout-out to Lynn Sweet, Chicago oh, nice. Sun-Times, Lynn Sweet, longtime writer, columnist, uh, covering Washington, D.C., for the, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. She had a very funny line. Uh, in her column today, her article today, but I got a feeling she's been influenced by a certain Dr. D. Oh, yeah. Okay, let me read to you this line. So uh, here's what she said. Here's what Lynn Sweet says. Lori Lightfoot is starting off uh, in, in Washington as a blank slate, eager to forge relations, start a new chapter, et cetera. She's a sharp contrast to departing Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who, as an ex-congressman and White House chief of staff to former President Barack Obama, knew everybody and, he sort of let you know, everything. He knew everybody and everything. What's that you always say about Mayor Rahm, D? Oh, man, it's uh, something that we should all know about Mayor Rahm. He's smart. You're not. <laughs> okay, there you go. Lynn Sweet, uh, you are, uh, without with realizing or not realizing, and you are echoing the great thoughts of our very own Dr. D. And maybe the only one you want to echo. Not a lot of, not a lot of productive thoughts coming out of this brain. All right. Day one of Lori Lightfoot's D.C. visit also included a meeting with Ben's favorite. Now, you listeners and viewers can't see this, but uh, he actually hung up a uh, poster of her <laughs> on the wall over here. You guys can't see it. I'm sorry, you can't, but it's hanging up right there on the wall. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker. <laughs> Guys, Ben loves Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I My do God. like Nancy Pelosi. We'll see what Atiba Buchanan thinks about Nancy Pelosi. He'll be on real soon, but uh, I'm wondering what he's going to say about well, Nancy Atiba, Pelosi. Well, Atiba, he's here. Just a heads up. He loves her. All right, so be ready for that. Lightfoot and Pelosi discussed how Washington could help out Chicago. Of course, I asked, uh, asked all of them about the possibility for an infrastructure bill, and discussions are ongoing, but I expressed the great need that we have in Chicago, uh, particularly around mass transit and making sure that uh, we are um, getting funds that we need to rebuild our roads and bridges as well. All right. Yeah, she's looking for some money, from some, some infrastructure money. Uh, let's bring it in. I know the first thing they're probably going to do is bring in that money for, what was that thing, One Central? Remember we were talking about that the development deal in the near south side of Chicago? Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, competition for the transportation money they do bring in. One thing that de- Democrats and Republicans are supposed to agree on is infrastructure funding. Everybody's supposed to be in favor of repairing roads, building bridges, etc. You know, you would think they could get along in that one, but uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of improvement on that front. Even uh, even though Donald Trump claims to be for uh, an infrastructure fund. And finally, even though it's probably because they can't stand the mayor we have now and are genuinely (laughs) giddy about the fact he'll be leaving soon. But according to Lori Lightfoot, the big wigs in D.C. are big fans of her. There's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about this new change and opportunity in Chicago. And I think a lot of people want to help uh, me personally, but also the city be successful. 
Yeah, they want to help her and they want the city to be successful. Yeah, I don't know what to make of all this, D, because Rom was such an inside player and he would love going to Washington and New York and wheeling and dealing. Because I remember he would send out uh, uh, in his um, uh, their daily, what's Rom up to, uh, press releases that they would send out. Rom on an important trip to Washington or New York. They always try to emphasize how important it was. Generally, I think it was just Rom, you know, meeting with his pals and networking and raising money, et cetera, et cetera. Sitting down for interviews with uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, or, uh, you know, CNN or what have you. Uh, and uh, so I thought Rom was well-liked in Washington. In general, I always thought Rom was more popular the further you left, uh, further you were from Chicago. That's generally how things were when he was mayor of the city. Uh, and it seems like how, that's how things are uh, heading up as he leaves office. So uh, it's interesting to see that uh, Lori Lightfoot is claiming that people in Washington are as annoyed with Rom as the rest of us here in the city of Chicago. I bet the Trump administration more than any, right? Uh, well, Rom and the Trumps have an interesting relationship. Rom's brother, Ari, is was Trump's uh, agent. Uh, he, was he still his agent? Do you know? Do you know if, uh, if Ari? Do you don't know? Ari, Ari Emanuel, <laughs> big time, caught a team off guard there. Yeah, please don't uh, do that. Uh, Rom, in fact, when um, uh, Donald Trump was uh, meeting, it was in the interim before he was sworn in, he was meeting with officials at Trump Tower in New York. Ari Emanuel went in for a meeting with him. So there's a little, like, I think he said he was the, the king of Hollywood or something like that. So there's some love between Trump and Ari. And don't forget, D. You should know this better than anyone else. When we're on that train and we're going home together and we the train turns around the track uh, at Wacker Drive, and what do we see looming in the background? Big Trump Tower with that big Trump sign splashed on it. That's a gift from Rahm Emanuel in the city of Chicago. They let Trump put that ugly sign up there. So there's probably a lot of love between Trump and Rahm. It's just that at the moment, it's convenient for both of them to have a few. Not unlike... The feud that existed, if you recall, between uh, one Rahm Emanuel and one Governor Bruce Rauner. Remember that feud? Yeah, Yeah, they were old business partners and they claimed to have a feud and it was, you know, politically advantageous for both of them. But uh, uh, in the end, I think uh, Rahm and Rauner will make up and go back to making money together. Today, Mayor-elect Lightfoot is meeting with the Department of Transportation as well as the Black Caucus. So, Ben Jarofsky, your overall thoughts here. And the big question, will this D.C. visit benefit the city of Chicago whatsoever? Uh, it, it may bring in, you know, it helps to uh, bring it may bring in some money that when you get to will it benefit the city of Chicago, I think they will bring in money. The question is, how will the city of Chicago spend the money they get from Washington? Will they waste it on frivolous things like, oh, what is that? The overpass at uh, Belmont. That's just for Ken Davis. I just throw that out for him. Or will they, you know, an important uh, uh, CTA expansion plans like expanding the red line to the far south side of Chicago, through the south side of Chicago to the city's southern border. So it all depends on how the city spends the money it gets. But I do believe uh, by going to Washington and making the rounds, uh, Lori Lightfoot can uh, help bring money in for the city. But by the way, one little point that uh, Lynn Sweet brought out, I don't know if uh, if you saw this, D. Uh, Lori Lightfoot announced that she would not uh, be getting involved in the 2020 primary in the 3rd Congressional District. That's where incumbent uh, Democrat uh, Dan Lipinski is being challenged once again by Marie Newman. Marie Newman is um, pro-choice, and uh, Dan Lipinski is vehemently anti-choice. I believe he may be, Atiba can probably help me out on this, the only Democrat uh, in Congress 
uh, who is anti-choice, or one of the only, definitely. And so by not getting involved in that primary, Lori Lightfoot is saying, you know what? I may have been a candidate uh, running as a liberal on social issues, but now that I'm mayor of the city of Chicago, I am not getting involved in Democratic primaries. I'm not making enemies. I want to cultivate a relationship with Lipinski just in case he wins. So she's being made. That's called mayoral, D, as opposed to political. So there you are. A little review of day one of Lori Lightfoot's three-day trip to Washington, D.C. We went to the Facebook page to ask all of you maybe some advice for Lori and going to D.C. Several of you have weighed in here. Let's see if we can uh, read some of your comments here. So the question posted, Mayor-elect Lightfoot is at the White House for a three-day trip to D.C. Is there any advice you can give to Lori? How about Lewis? Lewis Lewis weighed in and says here, stay away from the red plague over there and get back to Chicago where she is respected and admired. Lewis weighed in and said, uh, well, don't meet those thrives. Monica weighed in, said, tell him to resign. Impeachment is waiting in the wings. <laughs> Let's see here. How, oh, we got Vince here. Vince weighed in and uh, gave some advice to Lori. Vince says, stay away from the subpoenas. Uh, Patrick, a good friend, Pat Rod, who's always on the live stream chat. You're the man, Pat Rod. He weighed in as well. He says, aim for the balls. Okay, what are you putting there? Yeah. All right, we got Ken here. He says, uh, the guy behind her strikes the pose. There's the picture of her there on uh, the Facebook page. There's a feller standing behind her. Says, the guy behind her strikes a pose that says he is both important and official. The game playing in the beltway is systematic. Like certain diseases. All right. Uh, let's see here. And Pops says, don't drink the Kool-Aid. We'll be reading your uh, comments <laughs> oh throughout God. today's show. Advice for Lori Lightfoot. Head over to the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page and leave us your comments. At Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J, show on both Facebook and Twitter. And uh, there you are. Just like that. You're now in the know of what's going on in Chicago and or Illinois. Wait, Ben handed me a note. What's this say? <laughs> I heart Pelosi. Okay, <laughs> we get it. You love Nancy Pelosi. Good Lord. Now you'll have an answer the next time someone asks you, hey, what else is news? Uh, let me tell you something. What? Something that Lori Lightfoot, Lori Metcalf, and Lori Johnson, a kid I went to grammar school with, all agree. You did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. A T-boob candidate is sitting here. He's ready to talk. Trump, 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 Trump. We'll do that when we return. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. It's Chicagoland's adult entertainment playground. (laughs) 
It's the world famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, indeed, we are live. It's Wednesday, and usually uh, Monroe Anderson, our noted Trump expert, would be here, but Monroe couldn't make it today. So uh, Atibu Buchanan is uh, sitting in for him, and Tebow was our guest last week with Monroe. It was quite a combination. The two of them know more about Trump than anyone in America. Uh, Atibu Buchanan is the co-host of a podcast, Humanity in the Headlines. Atiba, welcome back. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I, I, these are just like some awfully big shoes to try and feel today, so I'm going to do my best. You'll do your best. <laughs> now, Monroe, is, uh, uh, he knows a lot about Trump. He's very opinionated. He's not afraid to uh, uh, swear like a sailor. Oh, but my God. I what know. a dirty sailor. <laughs> he, does, that he does not mince words, and I appreciate that about him. All right. Let's uh, start with the big news in Trump land. Uh, the front page of the New York Times. I'm holding this up for our viewers to see. Uh, says it all. Uh, Trump tax figures, tax figures show a decade of huge losses. Core businesses absorbed over one billion dollars in red ink from 1985 through 1994. The story about Donald Trump and his taxes, Atiba, does not seem to be going away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, that's excellent reporting. They were able to get not tax returns from those years, but tax summaries. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, it's a summary that the IRS puts out, um, but not publicly. Actually, they they were able to get that through a source at the IRS, but they obviously wouldn't reveal the source. But it is a summary of what happened with the taxes as far as the losses that were claimed, uh, any taxes that were paid versus any refunds that may have been given. So it's it's a summary that they were able to get for those years, not the actual returns. But the summaries are, as you can see, very informative. All right. Before we take a deep dive on what the summaries say, let me ask you this. Uh, They received this... uh, they got this from somebody at the uh, some right. source. Do you think Trump will do a counterattack? You know, he always talks right now about investigating the investigators uh, in terms of the Russian investigation. Do you think that uh, he'll get go after the the source? Do you think he would do that? Of course he would. He has he has absolutely no uh, respect for the rule of law. He has no respect for the First Amendment and he has no respect for a free press, which is part uh, of our great democracy. So I I wouldn't put anything past him, especially when it comes to revealing information that he doesn't want out in in the public sphere, especially information that's obviously embarrassing to him. Uh, I think there was a quote in the article that said something something like he had lost more money than any individual in that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had lost the most money by far. So it wasn't even close. Um, he's averaging over $100 million a year in losses in that decade. So again, that information being embarrassing, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he tried to sick bar whoever on him. 
And uh, what was the, uh, the reasons given for uh, the losses? Was it just incompetence? <laughs> uh, or is it strategic? Well, according to his Twitter feed, uh, losses were just the end thing in the 80s. Hey, everybody was getting yeah. losses back then. That's, yeah. you know, how do you think he became a millionaire? By getting losses. Yeah. No, he, what he does is he tries to spend everything to his advantage. So uh, when you look at his casinos going under, again, it wasn't so much that they were failing. He said that the slots were just too hot. No one had ever seen payouts that fast, so he couldn't admit that he had failed on the casinos. And same thing here. Instead of admitting that he had losses or that, 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 that it was problematic, his position is, to this day, that the losses were something that everybody was doing. He's just one of many developers in New York at the time that was taking losses, although we, we know the exact polar opposite to be the truth. Now, uh, here's the, the interesting thing is that the tweet that uh, Dennis read a little earlier uh, was it contradicted itself uh, mm -hmm. at the end from the beginning. And Dennis said, oh, you mean you Donald Trump speaking yeah. out of two sides of, the of his mouth? At the start, he said, all developers lose money. It's yep. a sport. So he made it seem as though th th they're in the game to uh, avoid paying taxes, they all do it, and, that, and they're proud of it. And then he said, in the next breath, the article is inaccurate and yes, fake news. <laughs> fake news. Well, right. which one is, is it? it? Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's what he does. His his spinning, especially when he's left to do it on his own, is just absolutely horrible. But the one thing I don't want to get lost in this is that. When you look at Donald Trump and you look at now confirming that he is a horrible businessman because a lot of his base voted for him because they equate him being rich with him being smart or him being effective. And now we find out that that probably wasn't the case. He's losing millions, oh, oh, excuse me, over a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And we have to now evaluate his standing with foreign policy yeah. when we look at that. Mm -hmm. Here's a president who supposedly is giving his donating his salary because he's so rich but we all know that he's making up for that in illegal ways because he again as i said last week refuses to um to remove himself from his businesses and he has tons of conflicts of interest and he's making it up with these foreign powers just his hotel in dc alone where do all the foreign dignitaries go when they come to dc mm -hmm. trump hotel he's still making money off that during the election it, it was he kept it a secret that he was trying to get a Trump Tower project in Moscow. Mm. He never planned on winning. So the winning to him was a surprise. His whole thing was, I'll lose the election, which is fine, but I'll make $100 million with this building in Russia. So again, when we look at this guy who's obviously horrible with money, multiple bankruptcies, you look at Trump University, payouts there. You look at everything that he's ever touched and how he's destroyed it. Now we have to look at what is his relationship with people like Saudi Arabia? What is his, what is really his relationship with Russia? Mm -hmm. And I think that puts that, I think this article sheds a new light on that. What do you think some of the avenues of investigation uh, the Democrats should follow, follow uh, as a result of these revelations? Well, they're already on it. So now they're trying to get the information from Deutsche Bank, right? And mm -hmm. that's where they need to be going because when we when we see this article come out, we understand now why U.S. banks stop loaning him money. And if you can't get banks, if you can't get money in the U.S., where do you go? So now that that begs the question, he begins to develop these relationships, with these Russian oligarchs. And that now we know the, the root of where that came from, because we see here how he was unable to get money from U.S. banks mm -hmm. because everything he touched 
went to pot. And, and, and the sad part is, is that this is all money he inherited from his father. Mm-hmm. This isn't even money that, <laughs> that he made on his that own. That he made yeah. on his own. Yeah. It wasn't until uh, The Apprentice that he actually began to have some semblance of getting on his feet. And he understood that instead of trying to build things, he could make money just by branding his name. Yeah. And that's the only success he's really had as a business. Well, man. speaking about branding his name, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised he goes into this direction. When I go back to that tweet, uh, if he starts to think, if it starts to press the point that he, this actually proves, follow me on this one, follow me on mm-hmm. Trumpian logic, how brilliant he is because he was able to avoid paying taxes. And so he would say to uh, his followers, this shows you how smart I actually am. I yeah. figured out a way to avoid paying taxes. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of problems with that on many different levels. I As mean, do I. Okay. You know, not the least of which is we fund the collective good things we get out of government by paying taxes. taxes. Right. Uh, but let me, do you think this country is so cynical and so jaded that they would reward uh, a businessman like Donald Trump? who brags openly about uh, manipulating the tax laws to dodge uh, paying taxes. Only if we let him control the narrative, if we let him do the framing. If Democrats are able to, again, connect the dots to show why that behavior is problematic then and to now, then we we will have a chance of a lot of independents fleeing from him his base is going to be his base. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what he does. When he said he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, that might have been the only true thing he's ever said. Mm-hmm. But independents will flee from him, and and that's and that's really how he won because he got just enough independence to to flip things over to his favor. But again, he we cannot allow him to control the narrative. It can't be simply, hey, he was a bad businessman back then because we all know that. The question is, with him being a bad businessman, with him being unable to get money from US banks, how does that how does that then shape his behavior as it pertains to Russia in particular? And now here we have all these Russian contacts during his campaign and we understand that that was about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's why the pursuit of that investigate the investigation of the Russian connection is so important. I'll tell you this right now Atiba uh, if Donald Trump is, if this story has legs, if more documents emerge, if other mm-hmm. papers follow up on it, you're going to hear Republicans talking a lot about Bernie Sanders uh, and paying, so the fact that he's a millionaire and people didn't realize that, you know, they, despite his um, uh, pro-working man kind of rhetoric, and he should pay more in taxes uh, if he believes in that. You're going to hear Republicans talking about Governor Pritzker and his toilets and how he uh, took the toilets out of his house uh, in order to pay less in Cook County property taxes. In other words, what they're going to do on this issue is what Trump did uh, after the in 2016 when that tape came out where he was uh, caught uh, uh, using the P word, if you remember. Uh, He immediately counterattacked by saying, well, Clinton was as bad. Clinton was as bad. They're going to do that. They're going to try to muddy it up by bringing in uh, any evidence they can of Democrats. Yeah, Uh, sure. So, and and good luck with that, especially with Bernie Sanders, because... One, he'll, he'll be the first to say he doesn't mind paying his fair share of taxes. So they're going to have a problem really trying to pin, pigeonhole him into that type of framing. Um, my bigger problem with that is, and this is what I would hope Democrats would do to counter, pay, not paying taxes is un-American. Can we establish that? That one of, the, one of the most patriotic things you can do besides serving in the military is pay your taxes. 
So when you don't pay taxes, you're unpatriotic. And that's how he got into the White House on all this fake patriotism. Make America great again. How can you make America great again if you're not willing to pay your fair share into what makes America function? So again, if we if we allow him to make the framing that not paying taxes is a smart thing, instead of being able to say one of the most patriotic things you can do is pay your taxes. That's what good patriots do. If we could begin to get that type of framing, I don't think he'll be able wow, to. Wow, that's to, interesting. I, is that a winning concept? To, to go out there because I, I hear you what you're saying. I, I'm like I spend my so much of my time championing a fair tax, a progressive tax, uh, making taxation a fall on the f- people who can afford to pay it the most, etc. Right. I think that is just common sense, etc. Uh, but it, there's just such an anti-tax for people hate paying taxes so much. Do you think you could actually uh, promote the idea, the ideal of contributing to society? Absolutely. And when, in, in particular, in attacking, attacking Donald Trump, you can tie several other things to it. Because every time he's had an opportunity to do something patriotic or American or help Americans, he's not done so for the benefit of his own pocket. Trump ties. This is not a Trump tie. <laughs> we, are, nice we all tie. find yeah. out. Thank you very much. <laughs> we all found out during the campaign Trump ties aren't made in America. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if, if Americans got paid for all of this stuff? Most of Ivanka's products are not the vast majority. I don't know if she has anything made in America. Yeah. Uh, made in America hats, uh, Make America Great Again hats, were initially not made in America. The very hats that, that said it. So it, it was only after intense public scrutiny that they, begin, that they began to make the hats in America. So when you can tie his, everything that he does personally with, again, he, he doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't build anything that he does build. He doesn't do it in America. And then when he does use American labor, mm-hmm. he, look how many businesses he's shorted. How many people he's put out of business. Yeah. Look at Trump University. That's what he does to Americans. And uh, forgive me if I'm, uh, if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Didn't he just didn't wasn't it just proven that he had uh, illegal immig- immigration yeah. at at Mar-a-Lago? Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, he had undocumented workers yeah. at Mar-a-Lago. The, yeah. Again, if you begin to tie all those things together, then it begins to. I, I'll take it one. I'm follow. I'll take it one step further and leaving the realm of business and just talking in general about how he views himself in relation to the larger society. When he was a very young man, a tall, strong young man. At uh, he could have served in in the military in Vietnam, right. and I think I can't remember was it toe? What hurt? It's Heels. like a little toey. Was it his toey there? Yeah, bone spurs. Oh, but I'm I'm sorry, Donald Trump. I thought it was your little toe, but it was the bone spur that kept right. you from being in. But there you go. He five ducked deferments. Out. Five. He ducked out, so somebody else had to do it. You don't pay your taxes, somebody else has to pay more. And that's what I'm saying. The, the man is genuinely un-American, and he and he does so again for the benefit solely of himself mm-hmm. and if you if you can begin to paint that picture and it's very easy to paint it's like having colors and numbers like the paint by numbers all you have to do is show the american people this guy is un-american and he's playing you for a sucker here you are paying your taxes like a fool mm-hmm. no everybody needs to pay their fair share and that's what and that that's the that's the narrative that needs to be out there and that's why this article is so important again not paying taxes is un-american you right. can't let him paint the narrative that it's just smart and slick and I, I i expect that this story is not going away because for no other reason i think more information about donald trump's taxes uh, will emerge either through leaks like this one 
or, and now I'm going to move on to yes. shift gears, mm -hmm. uh, the congressional effort by Democrats in the House of Representatives to force Donald Trump to release his taxes along with, there's a whole long list of things they want the uh, Republicans to force. We talked a little bit about this with Jim Coogan yesterday. Let's get the update on this. The Democrats trying to force uh, testimony from the White House force uh, yeah. documents to be returned over. What's what's the latest? What's going on there? Okay, so the latest is uh, the House has now uh, voted to hold William Barr in contempt. That happened today. There were a bunch of hearings today. A lot of congressmen got a chance to speak. It was difficult to listen to. I heard Jim Jordan. It's like nails on a chalkboard <laughs> out of Ohio. Yeah. Uh, be, be, just because they live in a completely different reality. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't mind a respectful disagreement. Mm -hmm. People can kind of see things a different way. But there is, you know, again, you're not entitled to your own facts. And Republicans just, they, they don't care. They, I, I am, I'm never ceased to be amazed by their, their, the amount of brazenness that they have and, and the amount of uh, audacity and temerity that they have because... They just, they don't care about being hypocritical. They do not care. What was the, I, I've been in the studio all day, so I've missed the, the breaking news from today. What was the argument that uh, Jim Jordan was advancing? All of the, so I, I watched several Republicans, and all of their argument was is that William Barr is the only person trying to uphold the law. He, so what does, and, and they're saying, what does he get for trying to uphold the law? You guys are trying to hold him into, into contempt. So their, their reality is that William Barr has done nothing wrong and that he is the one he's the one person in this entire situation that's trying to uphold the law. They've indicated that um, this is basically a witch hunt. This is not uh, based in anything um, based on any merit and that Republicans, um, excuse me, the Democrats are just crying over spilled milk. They expected the Mueller report to be more revealing. It wasn't. And now they're going after whatever else they can. So they've mm -hmm. really just parroted a bunch of the uh, president's talking points today. You know, Again, in a completely different reality. And and I'll, it's interesting because uh, I'm, I'm used to, when I think of the relationship between an executive uh, and legislative body, I'm thinking of Chicago. In Chicago, the city council is compliant as it is to the mayor, as much of a rubber stamp as the mayor. I, I don't think uh, they would tag team with a mayor, well, I should think this through before I say it, uh, Atiba, to keep uh, a mayoral aide to come before coming before them. Uh, every year there's a budget hearing in Chicago and mayoral aides come before them and there's this dog and pony show where they're interrogated. Uh, I would susp I would hope that the Republican congressman would uphold the legislative right uh, to uh, see White House documents, to question White House officials, to question Justice Department officials. Now, once they're questioning them, they may play, you know, do the dirty dealing for yeah. Donald Trump. But at least they would hold, uphold the principle that Congress has a right to know this and, stuff. And you would think they would do that if for no other reason on the off chance that I don't know, one day we might actually have a Democratic president. And you don't want to set a precedent for that president to behave that way. But they don't care. Well, let me ask you that question that they would come right back. If the roles reverse and it was a Democrat in the White House who was resisting stonewalling an attempt by Republicans uh, to turn over information, would you be uh, speaking about this greater principle of the legislators' right to know? Absolutely, because Democrats, hold, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. That's why Al Franken is gone. 
He's gone. He's not going because Republicans wanted him gone. He's gone because Democrats said, no, we're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. And we need to set an example so that when one of them do it, they hold they hold themselves to the same example. But when that happens with Republicans, they won't care. Yeah. All right. Now, speaking about the double standards, the Democrats and Republicans uh, this weekend, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Speaker of the House had some interesting comments. Love to get your thoughts on them. I'm paraphrasing them. She essentially said if the Democrats don't win uh, big time against Donald Trump in 2020, he will probably uh, claim that he actually won, that the election was rigged, uh, and he may not leave office. Um, That's pretty strong talk from the Speaker of the House. What's your thoughts about that? Finally, thank God. No mincing of words. Uh, No more benefit of the doubt. We can just say it for what it is. We can we can actually say what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and can evaluate with our minds. She's not saying that out of the thin blue air, um, thin, the, the thin air. She's mm-hmm. saying that based on what she's seen and what she's heard this president say. On more than one occasion, he has quipped and joked about not leaving office. He's done so at one of his rallies. It's always one of his campaign style rallies. Um, And so he's already made that joke and he's done so recently, if I'm not mistaken. The other thing is look at who he befriends. Look at who he admires. He admires autocrats. He admires Vladimir Putin. He admires the uh, president of Uh, the Philippines that Mm -hmm. kills drug dealers and kills people on drugs. He admires those types of people. He admires Saudi Arabia. He admires autocrats, people that are one man control, one man shop. Why does he, why, why does he do that? Because that's what he wants to be himself. He's broken every rule that you can imagine breaking because he doesn't care about the rule of law. He doesn't care about co-equal branches of government. Why would he spend so much time trying to foster an autocratic system here just to just to now when he loses to actually follow that one rule? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. That's not going to be the one rule that he follows. So again, he said as much, he's intimated as much, and he's beginning to, if you watch him, he's trying to put the pieces together so that he can operate that way. He's trying to operate as an autocrat, as a king. All right. Now, so uh, when you, if you, if you buy the argument that it's very important uh, to have uh, the strongest mandate possible out of that election, in your humble opinion, what's the strategy the Democrats should pursue uh, to get that mandate, to get that convincing turnout, to get that uh, solid anti-Trump vote? That's first of all, that's an excellent question. Um, and as as I think about it. Um, there's there are several things. They, they've already proven one in the midterms that health care is a great, great uh, topic for them to run on because you have to you have to look at it. You have you have a very fair question, just like they asked Obama when Trump came into the office. He had the White House, he had the Senate and he had the House of Representatives and he still couldn't pass a health care bill. Mm-hmm. And he had that for two years. Not only did he not pass a health care bill, they really never even raised one. They really never even had a bill to present in earnest. And to this day, now three years after his election, Republicans still don't have a viable alternative. So we have to run on health care because people's lives are at stake. People are dying because they can't get an EpiPen, because they can't get uh, insulin shots. And we have to we have to be able to bring those those situations home. Um, the, The other thing we have to do is really we have to reframe 
what it means to be American. Mm -hmm. And I think letting them, letting Republicans, you know, Republicans don't have, uh, don't have a monopoly on patriotism. They don't have a monopoly on loving this country and they don't have a, a, a monopoly on loving the rule of law. As a matter of fact, they're all anti those things. And we need to make sure that we, we are able to frame what it means to be an American, what it means to care about your fellow American and make sure that there's money in every American's pocket and every American can see their child go to school, take a vacation and not work themselves to death by the age of 50. Get a little more specific about policy on that last one, because that's an interesting way of putting it, what it means to be an American. Yeah, uh, sure. So how would that apply to, let's say, health care or an infrastructure bill or anything, something concrete? First, well, the first thing we have to do is talk about raising the minimum wage. Seriously, because if I'm not mistaken, it's still 725 mm. nationally, right? It's 825 in Illinois. But there's still, after all this time, has not been a significant national raise in the minimum wage. That is inexcusable. That's one of the first things we have to do. The other thing, we, we've, talked, we've seen candidates talk about a living wage. That's a serious conversation. Elizabeth Warren has brilliantly laid out a plan to talk about canceling student debt. That hits, that hits home with millions upon millions of Americans. Because no matter what, how many, when, when you are going to school and you are underwater in student loan debt, that, that has nothing to do with illegal immigration. That has nothing to do with people crossing the border. That's an in-home, that's an in-house problem that needs to be resolved in-house. And Americans need a reprieve and they need a break. And Democrats need to be able to show that they can give that break in a way that is still dignified. This isn't about free stuff. We have to eliminate that free stuff argument. This is about helping the country improve so that, again, all ships rise with the tide. What you, the free stuff argument, what do you mean by that? Well, That's a counter argument, but talk about that. Yeah, sure. So Republicans have had great success framing illegal immigration about, as, as people coming from Mexico to come here and get free stuff. And yeah, those taxes you pay, it's for their free stuff. And that, that has gotten a lot of traction, even though you can't get free stuff if you don't have a valid social security number. Even though it's really not true, it's, it, it, it plays to people's sensibilities and, and, and their, it plays to their ability to want to, their desire to want to feel superior and their desire to want to play the victim at the same time. And that's why that has a lot of traction. We have to get rid of that whole free stuff argument because what was Obama supposedly? All they talked about was how much the debt had gone up and they tried to link the national debt increasing to food stamps. Mm -hmm. He's the food stamp president. While the, the food budget is this much, mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, for the listeners, I'm, I'm holding up a barely a pinky finger of the actual budget. And, it has, and, and, our, and, and when was the last time you heard a Republican say anything about the national debt since Trump has been president? No, my goodness, it's disappeared. That was completely right. disappeared. Remember, yeah, remember was, when Obama was president? Yeah. All they talked about was how much they, we're leaving this on the backs of our grandchildren. Yeah. I haven't heard that argument. Yeah. The, the deficits are astronomical. I haven't heard that argument anymore. Republicans don't care about that kind of stuff as long as a Republican is in office. We have to remind people that when Democrats are in office, Bill Clinton, again, left that office with a surplus. Barack Obama came out of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Republicans gave us the Bush tax cuts 
and now they've given us this ballooning debt and deficit, we have to be able to connect those dots for voters. Uh, and uh, this is a conversation, uh, Deepa, I know you and I are going to be having as this uh, campaign unfolds. Uh, and Bhaskar uh, Sankara will be in the uh, studio in a little while. He's a little to the left of uh, most of the, the mainstream Democratic Party. He, uh, Democratic Socialists, get, get his thoughts on where the Democrats should go uh, on the, some of these issues of equity and fairness. But I have to talk about uh, sort of uh, the politics of the game of politics itself. Today's uh, newspapers are filled with stories about mayor like Lori Lightfoot going to Washington right. and uh, meeting with the various dignitaries. And as the mayor elected the city of Chicago, she she gets to she, she has to go to the White House meet the president. Okay, Chicago is a very important city. Yep, uh, used to be the second city. Now I guess it's the third city. Uh, anyway, in this picture, she doesn't meet with Donald Trump. She meets with Ivanka Trump. Right. What is going on? I have my own theories, which I've uh, talked about, like the way that the White House uses Ivanka Trump. Uh, so but what do you think is going on here? OK, so let's talk about the first thing that nobody's talking about with this. And it's the most obvious. Um, what, what about nepotism? So why is his daughter even in the position? Because <laughs> she's his daughter. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. let's let's like let's let's talk about that, because she shouldn't. What? Can you imagine uh, Rahm Emanuel <laughs> yeah. coming here to meet with uh, uh, Sasha Malala? I mean, what is it? Sasha Obama? Obama, yeah. Right? Could you imagine? Like, yeah. in what world? Yeah. He, she, he could barely meet with the first lady, let alone one of his children. So let's let's talk about the foolishness of that. Second of all, what is Ivanka's job? I really don't know. Yeah. She's not supposed to have security clearance. Like this is stuff that happened that, that we that we just normalize. <laughs> yeah. She's not supposed yeah. to have security clearance. That's a good point, yeah. So again, yeah. um I don't know why she's meeting with Ivanka. I don't know what's supposed to happen with that. We cannot name a single initiative that Ivanka has handled, that she's done well, that she's taken anything from point A to point B. So we, we I, I can't really say other than optics what it's for. There you go. Okay, so right. what message is the optics sending out? I think that I think that says to Trump that to some degree, the President Trump, that she's to some degree she's willing to play ball, um, that she's going to be somewhat amiable. Who and that, talk about that she life mm -hmm. and that and that she's not going to walk in as you would think a Democrat from Chicago would walk in and, and be completely um, anti-Trump. So I think I think she I think that message the message she's sending is. Okay, we can at least talk. We can at least be amiable and figure out if there's any common ground. Yeah. No, I understand why Lori Lightfoot uh, would want to go meet with the White House and want to be seen. Right. She's trying to elevate herself above politics. Right. She says she's staying. I, I mentioned this before. She's now going to stay out of the Democratic primary in the third congressional district where you have uh, a one of the most conservative Democrats, Dan Lipinski, running for re-election for the second time against Marie Newman, uh, who's coming at him from the left. She's going to uh, Lori Life is going to stay out of that. I understand why she has to be above politics as local. the mayor. Yeah, right. local. Everything is about getting. Uh, but it's just it's clear. I, I would say it's just that there's nobody else in the White House they have that can vaguely. Uh, look, a reasonable representative that could meet with somebody from a liberal city. Do you follow what I'm saying? Then Absolutely. Ivanka Trump. Yeah. Uh, that so it's just such a bizarre thing that he has to go to his daughter. Yes. Put her out there. You know, she's like, as I said, like the designated liberal meter. She's well, gonna, you got Jared, her husband, who's yeah, I, I guess in charge of foreign relations and trying to fix uh, Israel and 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 Palestine. Uh, so I guess he wouldn't meet with her. 
uh, and then everybody else is acting in their role. You have to remember, he doesn't have a lot of cabinet members that are official cabinet members. So every, he has an acting chief of staff, um, you know, you name it, everyone is acting and not in the, and not the person in the actual role. Well, one thing's for certain. She was his daughter before he got elected. I guess Ivanka Trump will be his daughter's afterwards. So she's not his acting daughter, she, right. uh, daughter, uh, in chief, uh, Atibu Buchanan. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate the Trump talk. Bring you back, get you back maybe next week with Monroe, I'd uh, love fired up, uh, Donald Trump talk. We'll see where, uh, this showdown is going to head. Ultimately, I do believe it'll go to the Supreme court. That's my prediction in terms of forcing uh, Barr uh, and McCann uh, to either testify or turn over documents. Do you think it's going to go that far? I believe it will because everybody's playing chicken. These guys are not going to give in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the House Republic, House Democrats are not going to give in and the White House is not going to give in. So I think that ju- the judiciary is going to have to step in and that gives me pause yeah. because Trump has it stacked. He's, he's got two justices in there. Yeah, he's got two. It comes down to John Roberts again. All right, All right. very good. Atiba, thank you so much. Uh, Bhaskar Sankara is sitting on deck. We'll bring him on when we return. Today's Ben Jaromsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Discover the breadth and majesty of Chicago's architecture on a Chicago Architecture Center bus tour. From bungalows to Bauhaus, our expert docents will share the fascinating stories behind our city's architecture. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a bus tour right now. Oh, my. Look at that wonderful piece of architecture. Last week on The Fran Spielman Show. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman, and with me is Alderman Scott Wagesback. And you could be, maybe, the chairman of the City Council Finance Committee. That's a possibility. I think the problem is that some people look at this uh, Finance Committee chair position as a way to, you know, have a lot of jobs. I mean, I've heard that out there. It's very simple. a simple approach to look at it. I'm looking at it as how are we going to really reform the city council? And if we're going to do it right as the mayor wants to do, as she has a mandate from 75% of the people in the city, then we've got to go through and cut a wide swath and make sure that we're looking at every task that's happening in there. What are we supposed to review? Um, If we're talking about reviewing bond documents that come down from the mayor's office or from the uh, CFO, then we need to make sure we have people on staff who are reviewing that and giving us an analysis that either counters or is comparable to what the mayor's office is doing. It's the Franz Bielman Show, this and every Friday, only at the Chicago Sun-Times website. Chicago.suntimes.com Cirque du Soleil's Big Top comes back to Chicago with its latest show, Volta. Venture into a captivating voyage of discovery inspired by the adventurous spirit of freedom where a surge of action sparks a high-voltage journey. Volta. Playing May 18th through July 6th under the Big Top at Soldier Field. Tickets at CirqueDuSoleil.com. Volta thanks their partners Hennessy Black and Champagne Nicolas Fayette. 
All right, everybody, hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we would like to thank the following unions for bringing back the Ben Jarofsky show. The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, no Ben, not Aerosmith, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. Thank you once again to those unions for jumping on board and bringing back the Ben Jarofsky show. And of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of labor hour number two of your ben jarofsky show it starts now got to get the music here hang tight here hour number two of the ben jarofsky show and we'll just play this starts now yeah. mallow <laughs> like this <laughs> it is wednesday may 8th and live from the Chicago Sun Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Well, this music is smooth. Oh, man. All so right. mellow. Man. In this hour of the program, we welcome Democratic Socialist author of the Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality, Bhaskar Sankara. We still got a Tebow Buchanan in studio, and we're hitting left with Chicago political junkie, Mike Klonsky. And now your host, Ben, put the cocktail down. <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yes, indeed. Atiba, it's nice to stick around. And Bhaskar Sankara is in the studio. Uh, the case for radical politics of the Socialist Manifesto. Uh, I, I gave you credit, uh, Bosker, for being vice chair of the Democratic Socialist of America, and you corrected me. You're a member at the moment, but at one point, you were vice chair. Am I correct on that? Yes, yes. I left by my own volition. Okay. Right. <laughs> you didn't get kicked <laughs> out. Right? Yeah, I did not get kicked out. Uh, and uh, you were also I, uh, either the publisher, the editor, the creator, the founder of uh, Jacobin uh, Magazine. Yep, yep. Okay, which one? I'm publisher? Uh, I'm the founding editor and publisher. All right. Yeah. Now, explain to people... All right. I was just having this conversation with Micah, who works for uh, Jacobin, or has written for it, what the word comes from and why, uh, what its significance is. So, yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, my family's from, from Trinidad mostly. And there was a very famous book written by a Trinidadian about the Haitian Revolution called The Black Jacobins. That book was laying around the, the, the table in the house when I was thinking about it. I was just an undergraduate in college. I was thinking about creating a magazine. I was like, why not call it Jacobin? I wish there was a better story. But what it was trying to, to encapsulate, I think, was this idea that these ideas of the Enlightenment that came started in Europe mm -hmm. was actually realized in its purest essence by these these former slaves fighting for their freedom that that believed that everybody did have the right to liberty to equality to to a fraternity and i think there's so much debate where people on the left would say oh all these ideas are imperialist bad ideas and people on the the right would say well you know these are um you know the western european ideals and they don't you know uh, so our idea was these ideals of freedom and democracy belong to everyone they belong to the whole world and you know that's that's what we were trying to do. Actually, this is interesting. You're saying there's some uh, uh, parallels to what uh, we were saying. Uh, Teeb and I were talking about before you came on uh, the show about ideals and principles uh, that people uh, that the Democrats might espouse to win this next election. But before we get into that, talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're very young, at least for me, compared to me. I don't think you're 30 yet, uh, but you've already got a lot of years of, uh, that you've dedicated to writing, thinking, talking. Uh, about politics. 
Uh, how, uh, when did you first get involved in politics and what was it that drove you uh, to your interest in politics? Well, for me, it was the realization that how much of life was an accident at birth. You know, I'm the youngest of five. I'm the only one in my family born in the United States. I saw that I had access to things my older siblings didn't have access to. You know, people just as smart as me, people with virtually the same DNA as me. Uh, my three older siblings didn't get the chance to, to go to college and, and things like that. Whereas when uh, I was growing up, my parents rented into uh, an area with a great school district. I had teachers that told me, oh, you got to you know make sure you study for the SATs. This is important. This is what you do. This is what you do. I had access to good public libraries. You know, my parents worked long nights. I had people looking after me uh, in the community. You know, when they were when they were doing that. So I saw that I benefited from the state, and I saw the way in which uh, the struggles that came before, including struggles for civil rights, for justice. You know, I was the beneficiary of, and I knew that these things came through conscious political activity. So I guess you could say I was a very good, very serious um, liberal. Uh, then over time, I, I kind of read and, and explored a more radical literature and saw the way in which all these gains that we make in the current system, even though they're really important, are really precarious because at the end of the day, there's people with certain levers of control, people who own big businesses and things like that. We might be in a democracy, but our votes don't count equally. And we need to, I think, create stronger labor movements, stronger unions, stronger social movements in order to combat that power that they that they have. And that's what democratic socialism gave to me. It was a framework to understand the world, though I don't uh, take for granted any of the gains or reforms that I benefited from. Uh, all right. Now, uh, the pivotal political figure of your generation, obviously, is Barack Obama, President Obama. Uh, was there a moment when he really inspired you and made you want to get involved in politics? Or did you always have sort of apprehensions about that mainstream democratic politics that he represents? Well, I became a self-described democratic socialist when I was around 14 years old. So <laughs> oh when I was way God. too young, I'm 29 now, so yeah. I'm almost 30. You've been um, half your life. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, actually, more than half my, my, uh, my life. Life, but so I, you know, I saw the way in which uh, uh, President Obama inspired people, and I think the worst thing that a radical can do, a socialist can do, is look at people who are inspired and happy about something and be like, "You shouldn't be happy about this." Yeah. It's just it's bad advice in general. It's a bad way to approach any situation, anything. So I think that at his best, Obama had these soaring visions for for rebuilding. Uh, a different sort of, uh, of society in the U.S. Of, of actually creating more equality and more fairness, but in practice, he wasn't able to really fight against the people that hold that hold wealth and power in this country. So, I'll give you an example: health reform. Uh, you know, he had good intentions. He wanted to cut down on the amount of uninsured people. He wanted to help people with pre-existing conditions, whatever else. But his mentality was: let's get everyone at the table. Let's bring in these insurance companies. Let's figure out a compromise that works for everyone. The path of least resistance. In the end, the Republicans and the insurance companies fought him just as much as he, if he was fighting for Medicare for all. But we ended up with a, a program that's slightly better, but it's not really working and didn't address the underlying cost spiral. Whereas Sanders' approach, Bernie Sanders' approach, is more, we're going to fight these people, we're going to name them, they're our enemies, and we're going to build this insurgent movement from the outside. And we'll see if, if he could actually get stuff done. But uh, it seems to me a more realistic approach. All right, we'll get into the to that uh, argument, but uh, I just listening to you talk about Obama uh, makes me think about a conversation I had with a gentleman named Stephen Smith, who was in this studio sitting in that chair. Uh, he's running for uh, governor of West Virginia, which is a red state, uh, has gone for Donald Trump. They love Donald Trump. The, the man will be running against 
uh, is a Democrat who flipped to become a Republican uh, and is an ally of Trump. And something Stephen Smith told me is that uh, he thinks a mistake that the Democrats have made and many of the leading uh, uh, politicians of the Democratic Party is that they're trying to promote like this politics of personality, this politics of celebrity, almost like this cult of celebrity, and that he is more into building a movement uh, and that he would be the beneficiary of that movement by getting elected. To me, Obama really does represent like the celebration of personality, celebration of celebrity. What's your thoughts about all that? Yeah, I think we definitely need leaders that we recognize, that we respect, and that seem honest. So I think you do need some degree of celebrity in in that. But so much of Obama seemed to be rely on, as he's described himself, people saw him as a blank canvas. They wanted to project whatever they wanted to project onto him. So people left of center thought, all right, this is a person who's a secret uh, radical who really wants to push these things in. People right of center uh, were also saying he's a secret radical, but in a bad way. They were talking about his long walks on the beach with, you know, Bill Ayers and, and whatever, uh, whatever else in his days, days in Chicago in the 90s. So uh, I think you need, we need big figures. We need people who could really galvanize and inspire people. So I think we need a certain type of celebrity, but one that is rooted in movement. So I think AOC, Bernie, it's good that these people are prominent. Uh, I, have a, I know a lot of people that were not engaged with politics, but do follow AOC on Instagram and, and like do get information and do are now thinking about things like climate change for the, for the first time in a serious way through that kind of engagement. Then, of course, there's a celebrity that's around Trump, which is a very negative, caustic, caustic thing. And he's riling up people for the wrong reasons. So I think it's kind of how you use your platforms, not necessarily the platforms themselves. Do you think Democrats should engage Trump on, the, uh, on his level? Like, you know, he taunts, teases, gives nicknames, mocks, maligns, constantly is... Uh, you know, joking about their expense and then claims credit. Like, for instance, he tagged Elizabeth Warren with the nickname of Pocahontas, and now he's taking credit. Like, I knocked her out. I hit her hard, and she hasn't recovered yet. Do you think Democrats, how do you think Democrats should respond to those kind of tactics? Well, I think Democrats should just be themselves and to actually fight around a set of a set of issues. Um, and Trump doesn't really have a commanding coalition. He squeaked through the presidency without the popular vote. He's maintained the support of around 40% of the population. The kind of majority that we need to make change is going to be a lot bigger. So I think we need to be talking about, about people's stress and anxiety. You know, I know so many people that are suffering from things like unemployment. The first thing they're told is, you know, it's, it's your fault, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you should uh, get retrained and take a coding class. Maybe you should reformat your CV. You know, so it's, it's an individualization of, of failings. And I think what people need to hear is that it's not your fault many other people going through this and there's political solutions to your problems in fact we can fight for something of a medical debt of of debt forgiveness and, and medicare for all these are things that are possible that are within reach and i think that's that's the message that has to go forward what i am concerned about is democrats talking a bit too much about trump's personal failings we already know that this guy is you know a creep we know his personal failings but it's not, it's not going to inspire people if, if it's just kind of this very negative uh, uh you know approach things uh, i'm concerned about them talking too much about russia mm-hmm. and all these other things i just want them to focus on bread and butter issues that, that actually impact people's people's lives all right now i'm gonna uh, make a confession here i am obsessed with russia i talk about russia all the time i talk about the russian investigations i do this uh because i'm an obsessive personality i must uh, 
I'm going to use you as my therapist, Bosker, uh, and reveal I'm a, I've got this interest. Well, finally, what? I'm off duty. <laughs> <laughs> I got a different therapist today, uh, and I think Atiba shares my obsessions on this. We were just actually having an obsessive talk about the Russian uh, situation. Here's where I'm going to uh, offer part with you on this one and get your response. Um, I believe, first of all, just in terms of general pursuit of truth, I want to see where this goes. I want to know what happened in 2016. Someone hacked into those computers. I want to know who hacked them into them. I have that uh, kind of curiosity. I also believe uh, that as a country, we should defend certain principles. And one of the principles is that the president is not the dictator. The president is not the monarch. The president has to comply with laws and subpoenas, etc. I think these are important fundamental uh, rights that we as Americans should stand up for. Do you think that's a distraction uh, for the Democrats to um, uphold to these things that I'm talking about? Well, I think the, the last point is especially important. I, I do think there is there is an attempted interference that should be investigated. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I'm not sure it was enough to swing the election. Uh, and I, I think we need to, to think about the things that were within control that we could have actually done to Hillary Clinton could have made one trip to Michigan. One rally might have been enough to, to swing things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it comes to this broader question, I, I do believe that it's very important that we maintain the idea that the executive is not is not above the law. Mm-hmm. We don't want to become like Turkey, like Russia, or these other, other countries that are becoming a liberal democracies or not even democracies at all. So I think it's very important. But if we try to defeat Trump through the courts, through impeachment, we won't defeat his democratic mandate. I really want to see him clobbered in the next election, and I want to focus on the ways in which we can make sure that he doesn't just lose by a few votes so he could claim you know, electoral fraud. And it is that we want him to lose by 10%, by 12%, 13%. And there's certain candidates out there. I'm a supporter of Bernie Sanders, but I see it in Elizabeth Warren. I see certain candidates that are actually putting forward ideas but are also capable of galvanizing some of the the anger and the feeling that people are, are having. And I see other candidates, and it feels like they were made in a PR workshop, like Biden. Oh, I don't have time to formulate a health care plan. I don't have time to think about this policy. What has he been doing for the last two years when he's been thinking <laughs> about running? What he's been doing is getting a tan. He's been kind of focus grouping certain like vacuous slogans to not offend anyone. It just it doesn't seem natural. And I think that's why people who did support Trump, you know, obviously a core of them are are racist or redeemable or whatever. A lot of them were also supporting Trump because he seemed like he speaked his mind. He seemed more honest, less fake than other politicians. So I think the Democrats need someone like Sanders, like Warren, you know, someone who who actually, for better or worse, is just their true selves. Yeah, uh, I'd like to bring you into this conversation, Atib, at this point, because there's some parallels to what you were just saying uh, and what Bhaskar is saying. Why don't you articulate for Bhaskar so you can hear your thoughts about uh, how you make a pitch for health care as sort of an American value. I'd love to get his response to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you and I would probably agree on much. So let me just say that. But the main thing I was saying was that we talked about strategy and I was saying that we have to stop letting Republicans frame everything. And we, we started with Donald Trump's taxes with the big New York Times thing. And I was saying that when you avoid paying taxes, that's un-American. That is unpatriotic. I think one of the most patriotic things you can do is pay taxes. But no one ever, no, no one ever links paying taxes to patriotism and we need to be able to to show that Americans having the right to health care is a patriotic thing is an American thing although we're the only 
country in you know the civilized mm. country that doesn't have it, that doesn't have health care for all. Those are the things that we need to be reminding people of. I think Bernie does an excellent job of that. Um, I wish AOC was 35 years old because I think more people would gravitate to hearing it from someone younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we have. I think Democrats just need to take control of the framing and to be able to show that student cancellation, student debt cancellation is a good thing for all Americans. It helps all Americans. And I think that that's what we need to be focused on. Yeah, I agree with that to some some degree. I think we need to say often on the left, we focus on what we know about American history. But people what we want to do in the future is actually say this is what America should be about. Even if we know that a lot of American history is about uh you know massacring indigenous people and slavery and all sorts of 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 like child labor and whatever else that's what america was about in history but i think what most americans want is a country that's about something else so i think you have to be able to to speak in those terms the only part that i would disagree with you about is that i think it's important to have the polarization of saying this is what 95 percent of us want this is what 99 percent of us want but there is a small group of people that are benefiting from the way things are. You know, if you're a health insurance CEO, you shouldn't want Medicare for all. I'm sorry, your life is going to get worse. You're probably still going to have a pretty nice life, but it's going to get it's going to get worse. So I think we need an object for anger, and I think Trump, his appeals weren't just to patriotism or to the nation or to whatever else. It was a look at these immigrants taking something away from you, and we need our own version of that, which obviously isn't about immigrants. It isn't about scapegoating, you know, the other oppressed and vulnerable people. It's about saying, you know, there's these people, you know, they're benefiting from the fact that your your interest rates keep going up. They're benefiting from the fact that you're having all this this stress and, and debt and whatnot. They're the ones, you know, calling your your bill. And he said he calls them millionaires and billionaires. And I think that's a good way to to, to start. So we have on the we're on the cusp of a strike by Lyft and Uber drivers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an excellent opportunity to be able to explain to people, to, to, to use that, to explain to people how they're suffering. Yes, we've had so many jobs created. Yes, the unemployment is at this rate. But how many people are working three jobs? Not to get ahead, to survive. Mm-hmm. And it, so, again, if you're talking about we need to have more unions, this is an excellent opportunity now to look. How many people are we probably got an Uber driver in this room? <laughs> how we many, had one yesterday, as a right. matter of fact. He was a guest on this show. Right. Yeah. So how, and he gave how, us a ride home. No, yeah, no, he did. Yeah. So how do we not take advantage of something like that? Mm-hmm. Because Uber drivers are, are struggling, and we have to be able to take advantage of those situations and show people that right-to-work laws are not to their benefit. And it's interesting that uh, Uber drivers are struggling, now Lyft drivers are struggling. And I remember when taxi cab drivers were struggling when Uber and Lyft came to Chicago, right. and they had... Uh, 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 Demonstrations where the taxis surrounded the city hall, and there was very little sympathy in the city of Chicago. I have to tell you this from uh, my friends uh, of the, they love their cell phones, persuasion. They loved having that uh, uh, in their phone. And now we're suddenly realizing that there were human consequences to just allowing Uber and Lyft to come into the city. And now Uber and Lyft drivers are saying they, so I guess uh, at some point someone has to take a stand on these issues. But it's really hard to maintain the solidarity without having a union. Because right. right now, there's Lyft and Uber drivers. Let's say one-third of the drivers. I'm just making this number. We don't know the numbers yet. In the city are on strike right now. That just means they're getting more and more incentives. The other ones, they're, 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 get, they're seeing, all right, they have to pay the bills. They have, they have um, you know, families to look after. They aren't getting access to a strike fund. They don't really know these other drivers. They're kind of all anonymous. And they're saying, okay, I could get paid 1.5 times more than usual if I just go out for a couple rides. Right. 
I mean, who could blame any of those drivers right now that are driving? Maybe some of our listeners show. Who could blame them for doing that? Oscar, you made a point a little while ago, and I took a note on it. I don't want to lose it. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You were talking. You said Medicare for all. People can make the argument that people lose with the Medicare for all. Did I hear you correctly about that? Well, I think a small portion of, of people who are uh, actually the insurance executives mm-hmm. you know, will will end up losing out. I think even other people with with employer sponsored health insurance will 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 have equal, if not superior. Uh, coverage, and they won't have to worry about what's in network, what's what's not with Medicare for all. So I think the vast majority of people benefit from it. But when people have medical debt, I don't think it's enough to say, um, oh, we're all in this together. I think you have to say that these health insurance companies, these pharmaceutical companies are benefiting from the fact that you can't afford to pay your, your insulin. Mm-hmm. They're, they're creating this false scarcity. And I just, all I was saying is that you need an object for anger and politics. A lot of politics about anger and there's good ways to use anger and there's really negative ways to use anger. We have to think about the, the, the positive ways to, to, to speak to people's you know, discontent. Uh, the, the guest I'm going to bring on in a little while, Mike Klonsky has been uh, at this political game for a long, long time. He was a radical in the sixties uh, and red baiting was really big in the 60s and the 70s, I, as a baby boomer, assumed that the Republicans would red bait the hell out of uh, Bernie Sanders. I thought the mainstream Democratic Party would red bait the hell out of him. He got close to 50% of the vote, kind of showed me a little something. Maybe red baiting uh, isn't what it used to be when Mike Klonsky was getting his start back in the golden days of the 60s. But I got this feeling, Bosker. That if Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee, we're going to see some big time red baiting on the part of the Republicans. What do you think about that? They already tried. He's been in the media spotlight since 2015. We know all these things about him. Many of them are good things. Oh, this guy was doing solidarity for uh, for poor Central Americans fighting against dictators in the 80s. People think that's a bad thing. You know, most people don't care, and the people who do care probably think it's a good thing. So, <laughs> so we, we we've we've heard these stories about him. But Bernie yeah. Sanders has always been been a small D Democrat. He's always believed in in democracy and freedom. He's never been an apologist for the Soviet Union, these other authoritarian states. And for him, what socialism was about is about saying, hey, democracy is a good thing in the workplace. Why uh, is a good place in, in the voting booth? Why don't we have it more of it in the workplace? Why don't we have certain rights and guarantees? Why do we take for granted the fact that a kid born in Fairfield, Connecticut, let's say, is going to have a radically different life outcome than a kid born in Waterbury or Hartford or Harlem. Like we, we, we take this completely for granted in our society. In other countries, it's not the case. And I think that's what Bernie's politics have been about. And to most people, it just seems decent and normal. Uh, TV, do you think that uh, the days of red baiting are over? I just read, for instance, I'll give you this. Uh, where, is it? where did I read this? It may have been the Nation magazine, a lefty magazine. Uh, the writer was saying that oh, they're going to come after Bernie. The, the, the Republican, uh, what is it called, oppo research file mm-hmm. is thick. They got pictures of Bernie without a shirt on in, in, in Russia. <laughs> I'm like, dang, they got the shirtless Bernie. Right. I got pictures of Mike Klonsky without a shirt. I'm going <laughs> to release to the media. Uh, so <laughs> just put that thought in your mind everybody all right so do you think that's gonna work do you think the red baiting will work no you and i talked about this a little earlier i I, not not with bernie sanders um again when you just look at a couple of short years ago in 2016 the idea of medicare for all when he really first started talking about it nationally really seemed out there and now it's kind of normalized now we have tons of other candidates um that are able to talk about it openly and unapologetically and i think they need to thank bernie sanders for that to be honest with you because a lot of a lot of his ideas now that were just in 2016 considered too radical are now becoming part of the mainstream conversation well they haven't quite hit joe biden yet it's 
taken him a while for Joe Biden yeah. to realize that uh, maybe it would be a good idea to come up with a health care plan. Uh, Bhaskar, uh, tell folks a little bit about your book, The Socialist Manifesto, the uh, and um, that uh, I don't have my subtitle here, The Case for Radical Politics. Talk about that. So, uh, you know, I think many people are now open to the idea of voting for a democratic socialist. It's now in the media. Bernie's talking about it. AOC is talking about it. Fox News is constantly, you know, talking about this, but people don't know really what it what it means. So I wanted to present a primer to introduce them to to here's the the socialist worldview. Here's some of our history. Here's about the high points and the low points. Here's maybe some lessons and a way forward. And here's why I personally think that this is the uh, if we're going to solve a lot of these problems facing us today, we have to solve it through more democracy. We have to thrive to have a more egalitarian society. That doesn't mean that the government's going to come in and collectivize your sock drawer or whatever else, but it does mean that there's certain guarantees or certain necessities that belong to people just by virtue of being born. So I wanted to create a book that was a, a kind of a primer and a starting point for, for, uh, for people. And uh, uh, the, 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 does that book that you introduced the notion, notion of uh, democratic socialists to a certain degree or another, we now have, I think, uh, I want to do this off the top of my head. Five or six aldermen. Looking at Klonsky, he's looking at me. Five or six. I think we have six, six. aldermen who uh, identify as democratic socialists. Uh, the most uh, if, of any council in America. Do you take that as like a triumph of some of the themes that you're articulating in the book? Oh, it's absolutely a, a, a triumph because I think the way in which I, the left should, let's say, approach the Democratic Party isn't to say that people are stupid for voting for the Democratic Party, because they're not, especially black and brown people who have the most to lose from getting Republican office. It makes perfect sense for them to vote for the for the lesser evil. That means less, less evil, less stress, less anxiety. What we want to do is we want to say the things that you like about the Democratic Party, the, the, the New Deal-like programs, the things like Social Security, like, like Medicare and whatnot, these things are actually not really defended earnestly by people like Rahm Emanuel. They're not really earnestly defended by politicians like Joe Biden. So instead of, I think our goal has to be to cleave off that base of the Democratic Party behind new, uh, new officials. Um, and obviously it's easier in nonpartisan races, but even in places like, uh, like these, these national races, politicians like AOC are running in Democratic primaries, but it's very obvious they're a different sort of of, of Democrat, and, and they're more earnestly committed to fighting against austerity and also to using their office to support community efforts, support things. And this is something that the CTU did really well in Chicago, which is not just make this about my bread and butter issue and my pay and my school, make it about a broader community and bring people into to a discussion. So I think that's really the, an important future of politics. And actually, I think I think we had two, maybe three, uh, three of the, uh, the the social city council people at my, my book event yesterday. So which, which ones? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, we had uh, Rosanna and Carlos were, were there for okay. sure. And I think uh, I think another one had popped in. And, Did and Carlos out. buy a book? You know, Carlos, I believe, uh, on, bought, a, bought, a book, bought a book. Yeah, Come but he, I, he's he's someone I've actually uh, <laughs> I've actually known in Chicago for yeah. for you know two three years. So actually three four years. So I don't I don't know about how good he is with constituents. I think he is because I can't go out with him because he'll just chat with someone about some like you know like very obscure permitting issue instead of uh, hanging out late at night. But, you know, these people are committed. This is their, their life. All right. That's a good point to have a break here and uh, bring on one of Carlos's constituents, I believe. Mike Klonsky is a constituent of the 35th Ward. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're in what ward? 
No, you're not in the... He's wagus packed. Okay, anyway. My favorite part of the Ben Jarofsky show, when Ben talks to people with no microphones. Dude, what are you doing? Uh, Mike Klatsky, we're going to bring him on at T. Cannon. Thanks so much for coming on, talking Trump, Trump, Trump. Thank you for having me. And, uh, Bosker, I think I'm going to ask you to stick around if you can. We'll be right back after this. Today's Ben Jarofsky show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. See the city from a whole new angle on a Chicago Architecture Center tour. With more than 85 tours to choose from, there are endless stories to discover. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm on a tour. Oh my, what magnificent architecture. Hey everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Benny J, take it away. All right. We uh, Mike, moved Mike Klonsky from the chair without a microphone to the chair with a microphone. So now when I ask him a question, D, he can uh, answer it. Everybody can hear what he says. All right. It's there called, we go. Hey, radio stuff. There all right. Radio, radio stuff. Radio stuff. Microphones. And microphones. Uh, Bosker is uh, still uh, with us. Uh, Atiba has left. D, before I give you kick it over, where, where did Atiba say people can check out his podcast? Check out Atiba Buchanan Saturdays on intellectualradio.com and all over YouTube, Humanity in the Headlines with uh, David Seaton. Yeah, uh, Atiba knows his stuff, particularly when it comes to Donald Trump. What you got for me, D? All right, two updates here. First up, we asked all of you on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook and Twitter pages a question. Mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot is in D.C. for a three-day trip. Yesterday, she visit, uh, visited Ivanka Trump and Nancy Pelosi. We asked all of you to give Lori some advice on her trip. Mm-hmm. A lot of you have weighed in, so let's read some of the advice you're giving in to Lori Lightfoot. Lori, I hope you're listening, all right? This could really help you out, okay? I know she's a big fan of the show. Big fan of the show. Oh, my goodness, big time. All right, so uh, how about Kel? Kel says this is her chance to show us if she stands with us or if she's a total bootlicker. 
What do you think about that yeah, comment, yeah, buddy? It's tough, man. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Kel. <laughs> Getting harsh. Kel doesn't play around. All right, let's see here. Oh, I like Charles's comment. Charles says, hey, uh, make sure you're up to date on all your shots. You're oh, going to be yeah. visiting the president, maybe. You know what <laughs> I mean? Yeah. All right, we got Van. He says, punch him right in his... Oh, okay, we're yeah. not going to read that. All right, on to uh, Greg. Greg says, join the TIFF lawsuit against yourself. Join Trump administration as the police board chief. Yes, uh, definitely uh, join that TIFF uh, lawsuit. Yes, here here on that one. All right, we're asking everybody to give some uh, advice to Lori Lightfoot on her three-day trip in D.C. Diane just says, why? Question mark. <laughs> well, you know, you got to get the money. Isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> Marvin says, hey, don't eat the burgers and fries that he offers, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, was it Did it was it burgers and fries he gave the basketball team, wasn't yeah. it? Uh-huh. Was it a basketball team that visited? No, football. What? No, no basketball team in its right mind will go visit Army, Donald Trump. Or something? Baylor women's team okay, visited. We're him. doing it again. Oh, <laughs> Miles. But where did he get the burgers? To? No, you're right. The football team. Uh, come on, Mike. Clemson. Yeah, but the Army football team uh, just visited him. I think they ordered them to visit him. Yeah, he commanded. <laughs> Someone's got to visit me. Hey, you. They got no choice. I think it was Clemson got the uh, yeah. the Clemson, the victorious Clemson. That coach made them come in. You're right, Miles. The Clemson player. I, we didn't want to go, but the coach made him go. <laughs> Two more words of wisdom here for Lori Lightfoot on her three-day trip in D.C. Andy says, meet people at Ben's Chili Bowl. Apparently, that's a restaurant. That's Ben's right. Chili Bowl. I did not know. You knew that? Yeah. Freaking Klonsky knows everything. All yeah. right. And finally... <laughs> The guy yeah. sitting right here, Michael Klonsky weighed in. Oh. <laughs> there's a guy. There's a guy in the picture uh, that that we posted on the Facebook page. He's just standing in the background, looking like a weirdo. And uh, Mike Klonsky put, "Watch your back." Speaking of which, who's that guy behind you? <laughs> right. Who was it? He was going. In, he was going inside his uh, pocket. I, it made me nervous. Got a little nervous on behalf of Donald Trump. All right, and we have uh, another update here. Our next update. I'm J.B. Pritzker, and I'm not a Perfect person. Yeah, and if you were to ask if you were to ask your average Illinois Republican, they would agree JB Pritzker is not a perfect person in his graduated income tax plan. Oh boy, that's far from perfect Uh, if you ask our Illinois conservative friends. Well, I'm kinda, you know, liking it a little bit. Last week we highlighted Illinois conservatives' latest tactic in stopping Pritzker. Get his legislation passed. Yeah, that uh, tactic. Call him out on toilet gate. The time JB Pritzker ripped out the toilets in his Gold Coast mansion, claimed an uninhabitable, and saved over three hundred thousand dollars in property taxes. Oh, and then label him a hypocrite for trying to tax rich people. That's the conservatives' plans here. Our friends, and that's sarcasm, over at Our Ideas Illinois made a 30-second hit piece on Pritzker's job tax. They're calling it unfair. Let's hear the latest ad from Ideas Illinois. Fair jobs tax. Oh, God. Let's start it over here. There J.B. Pritzker says his tax plan is all about fairness. The fair tax. Fair tax. I choose fairness. Can we trust him? The FBI is investigating Governor Pritzker. Pritzker got $331,000 in tax breaks by having the toilets ripped out, claiming the home was uninhabitable. That's not fair. That's fraudulent. Maybe even criminal. The wealthy aren't paying their fair share. But you will if Pritzker gets his way. Tell legislators Ooh. don't let him cheat us again say no to his unfair jobs tax yeah no we've been talking about this i told you this they were going to do this d uh when the the story broke over a year ago uh that jb pritzker was up to no good with uh his toilets and his gold coast mansion uh mike klonsky this is you missed the story about the jb finding finding 1.14 billion dollars yesterday 
to pay. Uh, well, you'll be talking to my brother yeah. about this to pay the pension uh, uh, bill. All right, one one uh, point that you should know about Klonsky's. There's a lot of them. I said this earlier. There's a Mike Klonsky's in the studio. Don't there's, mess with us. There's Fred Klonsky, who's the brother, <laughs> uh, who knows everything there is about pe- the state pension program. We'd be on next week talking pensions. We, we spend a lot of time talking pensions on the show. It's one of my many obsessions. And then there's Joanna Klonsky, a very good friend of the show, who's been on many many times. The creep report. She's the Creep report, right? Very good. Uh, men up to no good in politics uh, is uh, Joanna's specialty. But that's, you know, Joanna, of course, was a strategist for Lori Lightfoot. So I don't know if she will have the time to come on the show uh, as much uh, as we, uh, you know, Lori Lightfoot uh, campaign goes on. But yeah, uh, Mike, they're playing the games. They're you know, Pritzker's doing the right thing, in my humble opinion, to come up with a fair tax. Uh, a progress- that's a progressive tax, Bosker. So the wealthier you are, the more you pay. Uh, right now, we have a flat tax in Illinois, the state income tax of 4.5%. And so they're countering him by uh, much the way they're going to go after Bernie, I should say. We'll co- talk about that later. They're coming after him. The Republicans are uh, calling him a hypocrite because he tried to dodge the local tax man by yanking the toilets out of his uh, mansion. And they're trying to say, oh, don't, you know, he didn't pay taxes at his mansion. Somehow or other, that's related to having a fair tax. Mike, do you think this tactic is going to work? Well, the the interesting thing, you know, not to steal my brother's thunder, but uh, uh, as of last week, he was talking about a pension holiday, only going to pay down a a half of it. And um, we got a billion dollar bill coming due. And then uh, uh, the retirees and other people were putting the heat on him. Uh, and yesterday he found the money. Yeah, he found we, the money. And there's a lot of lessons. I, I know Boscar probably knows a lot about this too. Uh, when you when you uh, organize and when you put pressure on these politicians and they tell you, well, there's no money to pay for this, uh, pay for Medicare or pay for this or that, uh, you put the heat on and suddenly <laughs> the money, money is appears. Uh, $1.14 yeah. billion, dollars, yeah. you know? Wait, hold on. Oh, it's, it was under the table the whole time, <laughs> right. Mike Klonsky. Oh, yeah. yeah, they said that. 20 bucks. Yeah. 20 bucks under that Yeah, it was about $20 under right, that awesome. table. All right, Mike Klonsky and I go way, way back. Uh, I believe I met him in 1990. That's a long time ago. Uh, I don't know. Bosco you know, was I, one never, years old. <laughs> he was yeah, one years old. You know, there's something I want to clear the air about here today, Ben. I've never forgiven you for something. Uh, what did I do wrong this time? Do you remember? Uh, when us old guys played the Roosevelt oh, High School basketball God. team. Oh, good God. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And uh, the <laughs> Roosevelt uh, team did, wasn't invited to a Christmas tournament, so yeah. I organized a bunch of old geezers, uh, hoopers to yeah. come down and play, and we uh-huh. played this great game. And uh-huh. and I think uh, <laughs> uh, with a second to go in the game, uh, I made the game-winning shot. I don't remember that part okay, of it. Okay, well, maybe I'm making this up. <laughs> yeah, but, I think you are. But, but for some reason, the... The game didn't end. Yeah. The clock kept running. Yeah. And uh, then I looked over. It was Ben Jarofsky running the clock. Well, and he the... kept it running until <laughs> until Roosevelt uh, came back and took the lead. And then all of a sudden, the game ended. That's, there's a lot of truth to that story that he told. There's some truth. That, that was my, Manny Weinkars. Yeah, Manny, my, my, I mean, my, Manny the coach, uh, Manny legendary coach of Roosevelt, a uh, good friend of the show. Uh, and uh, it was a holiday tournament. <laughs> These geezers came in to play, the kids from Roosevelt. Uh, and the kids from Roosevelt treated you pretty nice. They were very respectful, you know, the old guys. But the old they guys were, stunned they were doing me. a lot of trash talking, believe me. Man. You, you guys were not bad for geezers. And yeah, it 
come down to a shot. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want the kids losing to these geezers. <laughs> so I may have forgot to put the uh, the, the buzzer. And then to like, yeah, it made some. It was a window into your character. Yeah, it's a window into my character. <laughs> but the part of the story I can't remember is the interesting part that you invented. Uh, yeah, I, Mike Klonsky, hit the game-winning shot. I actually don't remember any of that. But there was Eric Zorn, as I recall, was a very good basketball player, the Chicago Tribune writer. You dragged him in as your ringer. The guy's like 6'6 six, six or something like that yeah, with a jump yeah. shot. Uh, all right. Anyway, I have known Mike Klonsky for a very long time. Anyway, I forgive you now, Ben. Okay, thank you. Time and statue of limitation has expired. Uh, although I got a feeling 40 years from now, if we're both still here, I remember when. You... Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, Mike uh, is uh, a radical uh, in uh, every good use of the word, I like to say. And uh, you're struggles uh, to change the system go back to the 60s when you first came to Chicago and tell folks a little bit about it, especially Bosker who may not realize this that when you came to Chicago I want to say it was in 1968 for the Democratic Convention it could be off a year or two uh, you joined forces with people like Fred Hampton etc talk about those early days when you first came to Chicago uh, well actually uh, my wife Susan and I came to Chicago in 1968 after I after I uh, was elected to be the national secretary of SDS at Students for a Democratic Society, and we were the largest uh, student uh, radical organization in the country, uh, with upwards, with people estimate upwards of a couple hundred thousand mm-hmm. uh, members on campuses and in communities at that time, uh, fighting against the war in Vietnam and uh, organizing around civil rights and things like that. And uh, yeah, we, we we got here to Chicago the. The ashes were still smoldering from the uh, the uh, rebellion following the assassination of Dr. King. Rebellion, not That's riots. That's what I would call it, yeah. yeah. And uh, What's the distinction in your mind, a rebellion versus a riot? Well, there's a lot of negative connotations to a riot. It's like mindless, uh, you know, destruction and things like that. And, but uh, we, we felt that this was going on in over 40 cities around the country and it was directly related to the uh, killing of Dr. King. And it also, uh, Dr. King's assassination in some ways, in many ways to us, symbolized uh, the death of uh, the struggle for racial integration at the time. And so uh, there was a new uh, slogan in the air uh, of black power. And uh, so, uh, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me just say that I moved into the, uh, we moved into the West Side. Our offices was at 1608 West Madison Street, right in the heart of the West Side, and it was burning down at the time. National Guard tanks were rolling up Madison Street, and there was barbed wire out there. And uh, anyway, we're, I'm in the SES office, and one day there's a knock on the door, and there's these two, uh, two young black guys at the door, and our door you know, was barred up and with a little peephole. <laughs> Who is it? What do you want? And, uh, one of the guys says, uh, I'm Fred Hampton. And the other guy says, I'm Bobby Rush. And we're from the uh, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. So we opened the door, let him in. Uh, what's up? Uh, they said, we're, we're opening our office right up the block on Madison Street. And we want to know if you guys have any extra office furniture or typewriters or something like that that we could use. to." And we did. We had tons of stuff. And, and uh, we gave it to them and that's how I met uh, Fred and we established a, a relationship. It seemed like it was for years but he, he was assassinated himself a year later. Yeah, talk about is, that. Well, December this is the 50th 4th. anniversary yeah. of, the, of his assassination. And uh, I bring that up to, 
a lot of a lot of people when when Trump was elected in 2016, a lot of young folks told me that uh, they were totally depressed, ready to leave the country, uh, commit suicide, or whatever. And uh, and I tried to I tried to tell them, of course, you can't tell these young. Can't no, tell him anything, man. I try to tell him, you know, we we've been through things like this before, yeah. you know, and and um and uh, <laughs> there's ways to deal with it, you know. This is not the end of the uh, of the world, or in fact, in some ways, it's the beginning of a new political struggle. And I think the last couple of years have have shown that. And um, well, without getting into it too much, so. Uh, uh, that was a that was a really tough year for us. There was a lot of repression. You're about 69 after Fred Hampton was killed. Well, 68 and 69, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we faced uh, something called Operation COINTELPRO, mm-hmm. which was the FBI's uh, uh, kind of repressive attack on the progressive movement, the anti-war organizations. Um, there was raids on our offices. There was uh, uh, people, lots of people jailed. A, a killed shot <laughs> and uh, there was also a, a, a different kind of response on the part of the movement which was uh, well two things one if uh, if if we're not going to have integration in Chicago it wasn't just in the south that uh, DSEG was was smashed and defeated with this killing of King in Chicago you had uh, a long history of uh, discrimination and segregation in Jim Crow in the schools and in um, you know, in the workplace and things like that, in the communities, uh, the police were running wild, uh, and uh, it was open season, on, especially on young African American men. And the Black Panther Party kind of uh, t- took that to mean that uh, they we needed uh, armed self defense in the communities, and they uh, they di- they did it. <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember going to the Black Panther Party's office that summer, and there was lines of hundreds of young, mostly men, but women too, trying to enroll in the uh, in the Panther Party. The summer of 69. Yeah. Before uh, yeah. Fred Hampton was killed. Yes, summer of 69. And uh, anyway, it was, a, uh, it was a whole different world at that time. And so when you talk about uh, radicalism or socialism or revolution, uh, Though, there was a lot of red baiting, but also those ideas carried a different meaning to the, especially to the youth mm-hmm. and to the youth movement that many of whom came to Chicago in 68 to protest at the Democratic uh, Convention. And we had that wild melee up there, the police. That was a riot, that police riot. It's about the 68. Yeah. Were you here for that? I sure was, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, so, Mike, so many people of your generation, when they take a look at the lessons, of the 60s activism. And when they take a look at the lessons in particular of 1972, the presidential election, when George McGovern running on many of sort of the ideals that uh, he that emerged from your movements from the and from the Black Panthers for that matter. Uh, and they look at the drubbing that uh, McGovern took at the hands of Richard Nixon. The conclusion they reach, the lesson they draw, this gets back to what we're talking about, Bosker, is that the Democratic Party should never, ever, ever allow itself to move too left again. They'll only lose. They should never, ever, ever be the party of, let's say, Mike Klonsky. And instead, they should be the party. <laughs> I of, don't think there's much of a chance of that. <laughs> uh, they should be the party of Bill Clinton. 
uh, a person who's roughly your age, roughly your generation. And that's a lesson Bill Clinton drew. And he would, he would always, we're going to be the centrist party. And uh, Mayor Rahm has drawn that lesson. Your good friend David Axelrad has jo- uh, learned that lesson. Uh, so it seems as though that's the lesson they drew. What lesson did you draw from the 1972 presidential election? Well, it really goes back earlier for me. It goes back to 64, really, when the... Uh, when the uh, you know the the uh, party was the part the Democratic Party was the party of segregation in the South and the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party came up to the convention at Miami and then in Chicago and tried to uh, get seated and couldn't get a seat couldn't get their delegation seated and and couldn't be a part of that Democratic Party. Uh, then also remember that by uh, the late 60s, the Democratic Party was the war party. It was, you know, uh, so to us, to us young radicals, we had no truck with the Democratic Party. I mean, uh, with McGovern or uh, with, with any of them. And uh, people said, well, you're going to get Nixon elected. We said, well, bring it on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you're like my good friend Sam Holloway. Uh, I don't care if Trump wins. There's no difference between Trump no, no, and Hillary. I, I, I don't say that. Yeah. I don't say that. And, and, and we were probably uh, uh, ultra left a bit on that question. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as I said, you know, the, we, we couldn't find it within us to, to vote for the, the party that was uh, bombing the uh, 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 Vietnam and Cambodia and uh, so when did you evolve yeah. as they say to use Barack Obama's favorite word I'll tell you I'll tell you uh, it was re- really uh, when Harold Washington ran for uh, the mayor of Chicago 1983 and it gave us uh, it gave us a, a reason you know to get involved in electoral politics mm-hmm. and to uh, you know uh, we, we still kept one foot out in the you know in the community and in the streets, but we had one foot in, and uh, Harold uh, Harold's campaign represented uh, a liberating force for us. Well, there's so many ironies embedded in the story you told. Uh, one that your daughter Joanna has become one of the leading political strategists for Lori Lightfoot, uh, who's about to be uh, well sworn in as our next mayor, and, and Lori is definitely to the right of where uh, Mike was in 1972. That is for sure. Uh, and the second one, but Lori is also. There's a lot of parallels to me with the Harold Washington campaign. Harold Washington was not a was not a radical. Uh, he came right out of the Democratic Party machinery, but uh, he he stood for he stood for important yeah. principles. He and broke policies. with the Democrats. Uh, yeah, the he Democrats, broke with the yeah. Democrats. Lori Lightfoot is the first African American female uh, gay mayor of the city of Chicago, and the, in some ways, the response to, who ran against uh, a lot of them old remnants of the Democratic Party machine. And one more piece of irony, one of the people uh, who was endorsing Tony Preckwinkle was the aforementioned Bobby Rush. He's no longer a member of the Black Panther Party. He's now a congressman uh, from the 1st Congressional District, and he was the one who warned, like, civilization would end as we know it if... Uh, All the voters who voted for... Which, which was 74% of the electorate, yeah. would have blood on their hands. Did, have you called your old friend Bobby Rush to talk to him about that? I, I, that's, last time I talked to Bobby, it was on his, uh, his birthday a couple years ago, and I criticized him like I criticized you. I said, Bobby, 
It's I came. Crazy. I came. I came to collect our office furniture. We loaned it to you, but you never, <laughs> you never gave it back. And he said, uh, "It's in the mail, Mike. It's in the mail." Uh, that's Mike Klotsky. I'm Ben Drusky. Take a break. We're going to broaden the discussion. Bring Bosker back in. Okay. Uh, have a little uh, multi generational lefty talk here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Be right back. Today's Ben Jarofsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Get to know your city on one of Chicago Architecture Center's 65 walking tours. Hear the unforgettable secrets and stories behind Chicago architecture from our expert docents. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a tour right now. Oh, wow. Look at that building. At Chicago Land Cremation Options, we are committed to listening, educating, and guiding your family through the cremation process. Whether it is time of death or when planning your wishes for the future, Chicago Land Cremation Options can accommodate you at an affordable price and with great dignity. Avoid funeral home costs with direct access to a crematory for a cremation. Chicago Land Cremation Options, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business and operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Visit it at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. Yes, indeed. That super cool music means we're coming to the end of a super cool show. We're not there yet. In fact, by the way, Mike Klonsky, not only does he host a talk show, not only does, is he the father of Joanna Klonsky, not, as, not only is he an old radical, a writer, a teacher, he's playing the keyboards right over there. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, Mike Klonsky. My goodness. And he's amazing, man. That's why we call him Klonsky. Uh, I'm... Oh, I think we call him Klonsky because that's his name. Anyway, we're going to have Mike Klonsky. Bosker's still here. D, you got an update before we bring him on? Mike, play Chopstick. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I got an update. Sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> Mesmerized by that piano I know, Klonsky's playing. unbelievable. My Lord. Uh, we have 2020 presidential candidate update here. Okay. Uh, a day after his campaign unveiled new guidelines to combat sexual misconduct and discrimination, Mr. $27 himself, Bernie <laughs> Sanders has ratified a union contract, a first for a major party presidential campaign. Here's Bernie's campaign manager, Fahiz Sakur. He says, quote, we are proud of our workers and proud to uphold Bernie's commitment to collective bargaining rights and a strong labor movement. Together, we have achieved some of the strongest standards for campaign workers in history and set the bar higher for the next generation of campaigners. All right, Bernie, collective bargaining rights. You know, I'm a big union guy and member of two unions. All right. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, and uh, Bernie added one more quote, so sorry about that. 
27 dollars <laughs> that's his bernie imitation uh Abascar, uh you just heard mike uh tell his story and we just talked about bernie sanders uh allowing his uh, workers to uh organize first collective bargaining unit i've ever heard of in a political campaign which are notorious for exploiting their workers, uh, often not paying them. You know, oh, this is when the campaign's over, the, the candidate disappears. They're trying to get them to pay. Uh, so many, you mentioned this off the mic, but I, it, it really rings true. Uh, so many people of your generation, uh, Democratic Socialists, they're looking back toward that 60s generation, the Klonsky generation. Uh, I would warn any... Uh, uh, <laughs> Young activist to follow his president no, too much, this, but you are you do seem to be going uh, looking backwards for some of your heroes and for some of of you know the the ideology that binds you. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's important to remember that you're part of a, a tradition that there's been many people throughout history fighting for justice and fighting for equality, mm-hmm. and if you look at the history of let's say the American left. It's been episodic, but it's always been there. The first American left, you could probably say, was the abolitionist movement, where these people that also went on to later found the Republican Party that took part in the the struggle to make the Civil War not just about reunifying the country, but reunifying it on a basis that got rid of the planter class and got rid of slavery and for a time tried to create a radical democracy in this country through Reconstruction. You see the, the, the left as, you know, 100 years ago, there was 120,000 people in the Socialist Party of America. Back then, the country only had 120 million people. So you can imagine today it would be 300, 400,000 uh, people in the party. You had mayors of cities like Schenectady, like Troy, like Berkeley. All these places had socialist mayors. You had two uh, elected Congress people. You had a communist party in the 1930s that, unlike the communist parties that were ruling authoritarian states in the U.S., these communists were fighting for civil rights. They were fighting for union rights. They were on the right side of, of history here. And then, of course, we had the generation of people that looked at the slaughter overseas, looked at it, not just the fact that they were there, you know, 50,000 plus Americans dying in Vietnam. They looked at the hundreds of thousands of people dying, Vietnamese people dying there, and they said, you know, this is abhorrent. You know, we are responsible for this continuing to go on. And we're not just going to sit here and hope that the president changes his mind. We're going to go out there in the streets and we're going to connect this struggle against militarism with the struggle against racism. With There was also a big rank and file worker uprising in the late 60s and, and early 70s of workers fighting against sometimes very conservative trade union bureaucracies and fighting for more union democracy and whatever else. So I think there's a lot of really great and inspiring history. And, and myself, when I was 17, 18 years old, and I first started going to socialist meetings, it'd be me, a couple other young people, then a bunch of people who were over 50, <laughs> 60 years old. There was a donut hole. Yeah. I don't know what people in their 30s and 40s were doing. There was a lost generation, but you know, you would hear the stories, you hear the, the tradition. I think if you're, if you're interested in these ideas, you should know that even though they're not in your history textbooks, a lot of them at least, you know, there's been a history. Of, of radicals, of, of Democrats, small d Democrats of all persuasions that have fought to make this country a better place. And we were on the right side of history. The people fighting, voting for George Wallace and fighting for for um, um, uh, 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 for segregation were on the wrong side of history. And the people uh, fighting for, for integration and fighting for a multiracial democracy were on the right side of history. Yeah, I, I don't think that this, the, uh, the struggle that we're 
facing right here in Chicago and around the country today is really a battle, an ideological battle between socialism and capitalism, even though it's it's framed that way by the Republicans now. Uh, I think uh, uh, we elected socialist aldermen, aldermanic candidates here as part of a, a sentiment for change. Mm-hmm. And that included the mayor's race. I mean, uh, and uh, I, I think it, it was about what these candidates stood for, not just an ism, but where they stood on issues of uh, social justice, of equity, of education, of health care, of housing here in Chicago. And and I think it was pretty easy to defeat, well, not easy, but I mean, relatively speaking, uh, to defeat the incumbent Democrats here in, in the city who were tied to old machine politics. Mm-hmm. And that machine was, was, was identified as being a racist machine and an anti-worker uh, machine. And in fact, you saw that some of the individuals like Eddie Burke, uh, like uh, uh, O'Connor. Uh, Alderman Pat O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Alderman Pat O'Connor, who, who were you know, visibly representative of that old way. And I think young, young people today, young activists today, are, are not interested in in those old kind of democratic machine politics. All right, let's talk about some of the issues that Democrats could run on. And Boscar, this is one that uh, we've talked a lot about on the show. We already talked about health care. We'll put that to the side for the moment. Talk about paying uh, for a college education. And uh, uh, there was an interesting, I don't know if you saw this quote, Mayor Pete uh, from South Bend, Indiana, uh, had an uh, <laughs> uh, interesting, I'll put that, that word in quotes, take on this. Follow me what I'm about to tell you. I'm doing my best to paraphrase it. I have the actual article over there, but I'll just to paraphrase as best I can. He said he did not believe uh, in having universal uh, free college education because, follow me on this, people who have a college degree earn more money than people who do not have a college degree. So then we would essentially be subsidizing <laughs> the greater income that the people who have college degrees have by making people who don't have college degree pay for their tuition, which an interesting spin on the word, uh, spin on the whole concept, like saying I'm against something that's progressive for progressive reasons, if you follow what I just say. So first of all, your thoughts on Mayor Pete's attitude and, uh, and then your just your general thoughts on uh, college education and paying for it. Well, speaking of old Marxists, you know his dad was a was a was a Marxist was a was a Gramscian scholar. So the, the Mayor Pete, yeah, Mayor Pete's dad right. and 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 uh, Harris's dad too. So you know we have uh, unfortunately those are two of the the weaker candidates in my mind. But but uh, you know uh, the acorn fell far from the tree. <laughs> from the tree. <laughs> so the acorn hit the tree in the head. But you know we we get this complaint a lot when people say, oh, do you want Donald Trump's kid to go? go to college for free too or have universal health care i'll be like yeah that's a universal program means tested programs hurt the poor and working people the most because they're easiest to undermine mm-hmm. afterwards how do you get rid of public housing in chicago a lot of the, the public housing stock was demolished how did that happen oh you just get the poorest most vulnerable people in there you disinvest then you say look at them they can't govern themselves look at them this program that i just defunded doesn't work it's proof that, that it can never work, that social things can't work, that, that there's a culture of poverty in these, these areas. I mean, this is the way they, they always undermine programs. And it's sad that Democrats are still falling into this, uh, this trap. Well, I, I, I second the motion. I second <laughs> the motion. The motion. Yeah. Uh, what, what Buttigieg, uh, is that how you say his name? You just call him Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Or Buttigieg. 
I, I really don't see much difference between him and uh, and, and Trump. Uh, I, I, on on this issue, not, on on just about every issue he he talks about. I mean, where, where is the, where is that progressive side of him? I don't see it, except that he's anti-Trump. Yeah, and I don't think that's enough in this upcoming election to be anti-Trump. I think if if uh, the Democrats are just anti-Trump and just playing that, uh, you know, the Russia. A gate thing, I think they're going to lose again. Mm. Oscar, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I think any Democratic candidate will be far better than, than, than Trump. I'll support any Democratic candidate in a general election, but I, I, am, I share your concern that if you elect a Democrat that doesn't stand for anything, mm. the voters just won't come out. It's not that, that working class voters are going to all flock to Trump and start voting for him. It's just that people are going to stay at home. They don't even get the day off. What are you going to, like, you finish your shift at 6, 6.30. You have to, you have to like, get to the, the polling booth, stand in line. You have to be motivated to to do that. So I do have a fear that unless it's someone like Bernie, unless it's Warren, unless it's someone that inspires something, uh, then, you know, people will just maybe stay at home. It's not enough to just vote on the basis of a fear alone. Have you seen a plan for uh, uh, paying for college education that really inspires you for many of these candidates? Well, Sanders has his uh, free public tuition plan. I think that's a good start. I mean, I do think it's worth acknowledging that half of Americans don't go to college, but it's still a good aspirational demand, even for working class people. Because, you know, people maybe don't have the opportunity to go to college, still want their children to have the opportunity. Uh, my, my mother graduated from college the same, uh, same year uh, I did. Uh, you know, she went later in life, and it was, it was kind of a stepping stone to getting a job in the public sector. and. And whatever else, so I think it's it still plays to the aspirations of people, but in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It, I think our goal on the left has to be to play to people's aspirational visions, as long as their aspiration isn't to exploit and abuse others. You know, there's different parts of the American dream. There's a good part and there's a negative part. But a lot of people, you know, they, they want no boss over them, but they they don't want to trample on anyone either. How do we pay for K through 12 uh, education? Why not? Why not just call it 12 through, uh, K through 16 education? And if you want ways to pay for it, uh, I can give you plenty of ways. One is uh, uh, tax, uh, find the revenue through tax reform, and secondly, end uh, stuffing the Pentagon with trillions of dollars to carry out these adventures, <laughs> like the one we're carrying out now in the Persian Gulf. I, I pre- and I yeah. presume the reform that you're alluding to is um, a more progressive tax. In other words, we're the wealthier yes, people. What we're trying to do here uh, in the state of Illinois, uh, fading, uh, facing a lot of resistance. On the other point, Bosker, uh, that uh, Mayor Pete kind of lost is that well, you don't not just have to pay for college. You could pay for job training. You know, you could pay. <laughs> it doesn't have to just be your traditional four-year uh, college. Uh, my sense is that the Democrats press for this and actually achieve make. Uh, they won't be able, the Republicans won't be able to take it away. We see that with Obamacare, very bizarre situation, Bosker, where uh, Obama and the Democrats gave people something. I'm not saying it was perfect, but they gave them something, healthcare. And so Republicans campaign, this is so bizarre, Mike, I've never seen anything like it. We're gonna take away, like this is a great triumph, we're gonna take away what they gave you. It's so, you know what I mean? Like, and when a push comes to shove and they're gonna take it away, People are like, wait a minute, you're going to take away something I've got. It, it, it does uh, seem to work. Well, you know, the, it's like uh, Mayor Pete uh, says, what he's, what he's arguing is, the reason I say he's a lot like Trump or the Trump followers, 
he's arguing that uh, why should you uh, give something to some people, you know, when uh, and and not to others? There's some people that have already paid for their college. So if you if you have now have free college tuition, those people who paid for college are getting uh, ripped off because, you know, same with medical care. You know, it, it's a certain kind of logic. And the other part of that logic, I think, is something that Bhaskar said earlier. Uh, there's this thing about uh, why should we be paying for those people? Yeah. Those uh, undocumented uh, workers or immigrant immigrants coming into the country when we had to pay our own way you know and but i think the thing we have to drive home is that it's not charity you work That's hard right. you pay taxes you're you you deserve this right mm-hmm. this isn't charity the, the thing the british labor party did when they took power after world war ii was saying you just fought a war you just beat Nazism. You deserve quality health care. And that's why we're building this national health service. It's not charity. It was paid for by you. It's a service that you're building. And it was the most socialist thing that the Labor Party ever did. And it's the most popular thing. It's, it's a national treasure. In the UK, they used to cherish their empire. They used to talk about India as a crown jewel of what it meant to be British. Today, it's the national health service. All right, very good. And uh, so before we leave, Bhaskar, why don't you one more time tell folks the, uh, the title of your book, where they can get it, all that good stuff. You just had a book signing in Chicago. Talk about that. Yeah, so, so the book is The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Long title. I didn't write it. Some marketing department did. I think they did a good job. The actual <laughs> words in the book, I think, are an accessible, good primer for people interested in democratic socialist ideas. And, you know, it, it's going to be a trend in American politics politics for a long time to come. So whether you agree with it, disagree with it, I, I think it's useful to to engage with. You know, when I was a kid and becoming a socialist, you know, I also read books like Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom and whatnot. So even if you're a die-in-the-wool libertarian or capitalist or whatever else, just, you know, read it and tell me what you think. Just try not to use profanity. Uh, <laughs> oh, profanity is accepted and tolerated on a podcast even. Uh, and Mike Klonsky, uh, promote your show, Hitting Left. Hitting Left, uh, WLPN-FM. 105.5 in Chicago, streaming live at lumpinradio.com. All right, very good. And I just want to say one thing about the Klonskis. God bless the Klonskis. When a certain station fired and the Jarofskis. Me, the Klonskis stood by me. So I always pr- appreciate the Klonsky family. Thank we you, Mike. We got your back, Ben. Got my back. They said it was family, all right? Yes. <laughs> you know, not how the dailies got started? Yeah, they said it was family. So you know what? That's why I put up with Mike Klonsky inventing things. Like, I oh, hit the game-winning shot. Wait, after he took steps. You didn't talk about the traveling. All right, anyway, that's Mike so, Klonsky. So you remember now. <laughs> oh, it's coming back, yeah. Uh, and uh, Bosco. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Miles, outstanding job as always. He, of course, is the pride of joy of the Roosevelt University baseball team. They're red hot right now like our beloved Cubs. Kind of. Sort of. Oh, they're done. We're not going to talk about the season. I tried to avoid talking about yeah. that. Uh, and we have a couple more weeks. I know we're not allowed to talk. He's not on a mic, but we have one more week of your services, right, before you head off to Europe to play baseball? All right. Uh, so we really appreciate it. We're going to take advantage of that one last week. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the board, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. Oh, yeah. And Alton, you know what they call him, Mike Klasky? They call him White Lightning. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> the players, the ladies, all love him for his body and his mind. That's Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> and remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows 
at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites. Chicago.suntimes.com, ChicagoReader.com. We'll be back tomorrow with a brand new program live 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time on the same websites. ChicagoReader.com, Chicago.suntimes.com. Com. Find us online, social media, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, and Instagram. Send Ben a message. He handles the Instagram account. Oh, he's showing everybody his phone. You see it, guys? No, you don't. It's a podcast. We'll see you tomorrow. Cirque du Soleil's Big Top comes back to Chicago with its latest show, Volta. Venture into a captivating voyage of discovery inspired by the adventurous spirit of freedom where a surge of action sparks a high-voltage journey. Volta. Playing May 18th through July 6th under the Big Top at Soldier Field. Tickets at CirqueDuSoleil.com. Volta thanks their partners Hennessy Black and Champagne Nicola Fayette. 